you know, change in the battery technology, then that could have a no. And there was an announcement. We had a headline last week that there's a company with very big backers, including Bill Gates, that um, they're claiming they've figured out how to do these kind of, you know, rust batteries that would lower the cost of batteries, uh, the cost per kilowatt hour in lithium. Right now, the target was about $100 per kilowatt hour. And they're claiming they got it down to about $20 per kilowatt hour. And that would be tremendous, if if true. And by the way, even a lot, uh, Chamath Palihapitiya was talking about this on the All In podcast after we did in this room. And it, it for people who follow that space, uh, that's a that's a huge announcement, and it's um, let, let's cross our fingers that their their headline seemed to be geared towards wanting to, uh, you know, it was kind of a PR announcement to get more investment, um, um, activity. But you know, we'll we'll see. So, um, I got a ping. Yeah, let me ping in Chris in here. Hold on one second, Chris. For... I can do it for you. Yeah, please. Um, so, so, so today is the first session that uh, Ty, uh, Cal is on holiday, right? Yes, Cal starting his two-ish, oh, two-ish week summer holiday because his, his wife's a teacher and they're now on summer break with their kids and they're going yeah. offline for a couple weeks. Chris, I have a headline that you ha- I emailed to you. Oh, uh, I'm checking my email right now. <laughs> yeah, and it's that good. Bamboo. We've got bamboo here. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. It's about the bamboo project. So... And let's start with that one while the room fills up. <clears throat> so this one's really interesting. We we discovered it yesterday. It's from the University of Chicago on their webpage. So this is not like a publication. Well, it's a college. You Chicago News. Oh okay. yeah, yeah. Friend of mine sent this. This is legit. This is seriously legit. Oh, it's seriously legit. Yeah, there's no question. It's legit, and it's a tr- potentially um, has. This is potentially huge news, especially for the Bamboo Project. So let's just read through this real fast for those who didn't weren't with us when we were here 12 hours ago. Because just for context, <clears throat> and this is why I want to make sure Chris was in the room. The There's a website called drawdown.org. Is that it, Chris? Something like that? The drawdown. Sorry, yeah, on the on the, the, on the tab. Yes, drawdown.org. It's a great website. Strongly recommend to people. Fantastic I, website. Yeah. I have some quibbles with some of the calculations, but it's it's a fantastic gathering of stuff. It's like saying, hey, there's solutions and we can use these. Right. And it does the does everyone the incre- the tremendous favor of even ranking the solutions by, by the amount of CO2 that can be drawn down. So here's the problem. We have a whole lot of CO2 in the atmosphere, and that's causing a lot of heat. You may have seen headlines about heat in certain areas. You may have even felt heat in your areas if you live in the um, Vancouver region or others. Uh, the, these heat domes is becoming a very real thing. And these, you know, we've all seen the headlines, right? So that's due to the CO2 in the atmosphere fundamentally, right? The, the We've seen headlines about glaciers melting, droughts, all this shit. This is all uh, a byproduct of the are largely a byproduct of this uh, ever-growing amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. So, of course, we could start to reduce the amount of CO2 we put in the atmosphere by electric cars and, you know, um, trying to, you know, building electric systems for our our solar-powered for our house and all that, as we were just talking about. However, how do we get the CO2 that's in the atmosphere 
the amount of it, the net amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, how do we reduce that so that we can reduce this greenhouse-like effects that we are now witnessing? That's the big question. And that's called drawdown.org, where there is a hundred solutions for reducing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. The question is, which are the best? Which are the most effective? Which ones should we actually have the resources to go and try and do without government support necessarily? Which ones could we conceivably achieve? And it turns out when you do this analysis with quite intelligent people, drawdown.org has ranked all of these by how much CO2 could we actually draw down uh, on all of these different initiatives. And it turns out that they rank the highest is growing bamboo forests. Because my God. Agriculture. Yeah. Agriculture stuff. Just a general drawdown stuff. Bamboo is one that I rank about 10th or 11th, depending on the math kind of thing. So that's one of the reasons I have some quibbles. But it's a great, it's a great overall ranking. Right. So um, that has led m- m- myself and uh, Chris and a few others in the DMs to contemplate the feasibility, which he's been investigating for many years. And and it requires a bit of financial investment. And thank God there actually are some billionaires now. And there will be more as as, as the climate change uh, continues unabated. More billionaires will be very willing to donate their excess capital to projects that reduce the CO2 in the atmosphere. And I happen to have two friends who are billionaires who want to do exactly that. And have set aside the funds to do exactly that. And they're begging for people to come to them with viable, real solutions and um, make legitimate proposals that could reduce the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. So the idea that essentially is get bamboo seed, tons of it, a hundred, you know, um, is approximately a million kilograms if we keep it metric. Yeah, give or take, give or take. And carpet bomb the stuff in areas obviously you wouldn't do it at the north pole or the south pole you obviously would optimize for the areas where it's likely to take root and you would obviously try to avoid farms uh, to not disrupt farmers and their livelihoods and you would do all the obvious things obviously so um then this now i say all that to lead up to this headline which could in the not deal yeah, this could be actually really help this particular project. So it's, again, from University of Chicago's website. And the headline is, RNA Breakthrough Creates Crops That Grow 50% More Potatoes and Rice and Everything Else They've Tried It On Thus Far. Um, the U, U Chicago-led research could yield increased food production, boost drought tolerance. That's a key word. Boot, boot, <laughs> boost drought tolerance. And because... That would uh, ostensibly allow for a larger uptake of bamboo being dropped from an airplane, bamboo seeds being dropped from an airplane. So manipulating RNA could allow plants to yield dramatically more crops as well as increasing drought tolerance, announced a group of scientists from the University of Chicago, Peking University, and Guizhou University. In initial tests, adding a gene encoding for a protein called FTO to both rice and potato plants increased their yield by 50% in field tests. That alone is tremendous. That that alone is holy shit, holy cow, 50% more rice and potato out of those plants for each Just plant. Just spray growing. potatoes around the world and the world's fed. We're good to go. Yeah, and, and this is particularly near and dear to my heart where Thailand grows in, an absurd amount of rice and potatoes, actually. It's one, two of the main crops that we grow out of Thailand, actually, along with sugar and bananas and 
pineapples and a whole bunch of other things. Anyway, coconuts as well. So, startups now. And palm, palm oil. The list goes on. But uh, potatoes and rice are two absolutely two of our biggest crop exports. And then the plants grew significantly larger, produced longer root systems, and were able to tolerate drought stress. Oh, holy shit. With less water? Uh, fantastic. Significantly less water? That's drought stress. Analysis also showed that plants had increased their rate of photosynthesis. Fantastic. And ostensibly, based on that statement, I assume they also, uh, that uh, that leads me to be- potentially believe that they might even be better at reducing carbon in the air. Because if they're doing more a rate of photosynthesis or they're kind of yep. metabolically acting in, in a faster manner, maybe they're reducing even more CO2 than conventionally. It, 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 it's very it's very simple. All that mass, it doesn't. It, it, there's little tiny minerals that come from the roots, sure, but the majority of the uh, the actual mass of the plant comes from the air, and that's all CO2. So, if you've got biomass in the plant, that's that's biomass. That's basically C- carbon that came out of the atmosphere. So, more right. bigger plants means more uh, more carbon sequestered into a form that you can work with. Right. So the next uh, paragraph here, the, and this is a quote from the researchers. This. Uh, the change is really dramatic, said University of Chicago professor Chuan He, who, together with Professor Guifeng Jiai at Peking University, led the research. What's more, it worked with, with almost every type of plant we tried it with so far, and it's a very simple modification to make. The researchers, along with other leading experts, are hopeful that the potential of this breakthrough, especially in the face of climate change and other pressures on crop systems worldwide, this really provides the possibility of engineering plants to potentially improve the ecosystem of global warming proceeds. Oh, as global warming proceeds, said Hay, who is the John T. Wilson Distinguished Service Professor of Chemistry, Biochemistry, and Molecular Biology. We rely on plants for many, many things, everything from food, wood, food, and medicine to flowers and oil. And this potentially offers a way to increase the stock material we can get from most plants. This is a very exciting technology, and we could potentially help address problems of poverty and food insecurity at a global scale and could also potentially be useful in responding to climate change said Michael Kremer, who was awarded the Nobel Prize for his work on alleviating global poverty and is the university professor of economics at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Hello. Hello, hey. Dr. Hay. We ha- we would like to chat with you about the feasibility of doing this with bamboo. And um, And what a nice coincidence that your partners in this project are from Peking University and Guizhou University. Um, because that's where we'll be planning to get the bamboo seed. But then, of course, you'll have to create uh, a new batch of these new GMO bamboo, essentially. And then the question is, well, no, we'll just we'll stick with their this what singular protein that they found that they claim is easy to edit uh, this F protein called FTO. Exciting. That that could Very be exciting. that's fantastic. What a great headline. Anyway, so I'm sharing this out to the Tech News Twitter account as we always do with all of our headlines so the people can save them and share them and read them and go into depth and in, in whatever ones are exciting to you so that you don't have to DM me and say, oh, what was that headline? Where's the link to that story you talked about? Okay, so the next one I wanted to talk... So, Chris, before we go on to the next one, any anyone and anyone else, of course, is welcome to comment on... Uh, yeah, can I, can I just ask a question as yeah. someone who's based at a research institution yeah. and, you know, I, you know, I, I straddle, you know, science and management with the startup community, but I just think it's really interesting that, um, you know, universities really struggle 
um, to connect with people who have money to invest in their research that Amen. can be breakthrough. You yep. know, so so my daily struggle with some of my colleagues is that, you know, they're so focused on their lab work and on their papers yep. and on their books and their manuscripts and their advisees that um, any connection to the real world seems like an extra. And I think part of it is just because of the way that university systems are structured in terms of the reward system, but it's also a mentality kind of thing. And, yep. and I just, I think that there's such a huge opportunity because there's so much exciting research that happens at many research institutions that could possibly be solutions of our most um, you know, yeah. issues that we're facing in society, but there's just such a disconnect. So it's, yep. it's not a question. It's more of a statement of fact and a yeah. comment. I want to I piggyback on that, which is it's the same exact thing happens in startups, by the way, where you get engineers who are geeks who are coding stuff and they come up with really cool technologies like when peer-to-peer -peer file sharing was created. And it was like, oh, this whole new way to send files to each other. Oh, what can we do with this? We don't know. And Basically, there's, you know, within every startup, there's typically a, a real core geek coder individual who is terrible at fundraising, typically. And then you get an entre and the classic example is Apple. Steve Wozniak, you know, actually did the physical building of the original Apple computer. And then Steve Jobs comes along. And he's kind of the marketing product, you know, user experience, you know um fundraising type individual and it's and it's you have the similar dynamic in bands as well you need a drummer and you need a singer and you know it's like different skills and what what Lakeisha is referring to is at these university labs these R&D centers you know it's geeks who are not didn't take marketing <laughs> you know and communications and fundraising and finance and so they're geeks they're innovators but they don't necessarily know how to productize their innovations this happens all the time by the way i mean there's it's amazing to think how many earth-shaking innovations have occurred that didn't get the funding or whatever because the geeks are just going to geek and they're just happy to make the solution for its own sake and then didn't bring it to market so to speak um because they didn't yeah, find, they didn't find their they're super excited because they got a, a pub out of it, a publication. Maybe they got, you know, a plaque from the International Federation right. of Geeks, whichever their sector right. happens to be. And they are on the homepage of the university. And I say that not in a pejorative way. No, no. Just, you know, the, the ecosystems are so siloed. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it, yeah, yeah. So that, it's just, but that's, it's just that, that's the, the, they want peer validation. Because that's what they value. They're not even worried that it makes a billion dollars. Like, you know, the entrepreneur, most entrepreneurs are focused on making a unicorn. And the, the core geeks are, that's not their jam. They're more interested in seeking the validation of their peers and through peer, you know, these journals. And that's, that's the currency and credit of their ecosystem. And, you know, it, like I said, no doubt there's been potentially earth-shaking innovations that didn't make it to market because... Yeah, they achieved the goal that they wanted, which they got they got the validation of their peers and they got it in a journal. And, you know, if somebody takes the ball and runs with it and turns it into a unicorn, there, there's potentially hundreds, if not thousands, you know, that, of things that happen like that uh, on each year. So, uh, Chris, you wanted to course, so. hold on, Mahan. Chris has been waiting patiently for, uh, for us to rant um, to make a comment on the kind of closing thought on that article about the the RNA edit of plants <clears throat> to be super drought resistant 
So very brief, the one technology essentially that, that's a little bit unique with bamboo compared to other species is because it has such a long flowering cycle of like 100 years. It's only been relatively recently in the last like 15 years we've had the technology to do artificial flowering with like a, with wood species and such. Uh, it's, it's a grass, but essentially we know how to do induce that artificially. What's unique about this is it means that it's one of the very few crops that, you know, over you know, a billion people in the world use that has never actually gone through breeding and basically gone through like the typical things that human beings do where we grow better, better crops over time. So if you combine that with essentially some of the recent breakthroughs with gen genetic engineering combined with some of that RNA stuff, like we think bamboo is really hot now, like put, put a few rounds of essentially some, some science on that, you know, a couple of years in the lab, they can come with some absolute miracles with stuff. So it's some very, very exciting stuff there. Very cool. Chris, uh, go ahead. No, no, hang Chris. on. Hold on. There hold was, on. I had just told uh, somebody to hold on. And Mohan. Mohan, go ahead. Mohan. Uh, yeah, I was just going to add to the point you and uh, Lakisha were making that there are, of course, exceptions, right? Berkeley and Stanford and so on have spawned any number of startups coming out of university research of, you know, Spark and uh, Databricks and so on and so on. So in the case of uh, Berkeley, for instance, most recently. So uh, so it really depends on the university that you're uh, considering as to how good they are with uh, commercializing the university right. prototypes. Yeah. Notably, MIT he, is another one. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, this makes, uh, this is common sense because, Stanford and um, University of Berkeley happen to be in Silicon Valley where they're literally surrounded by entrepreneurs who are uh, hungry for fantastic new technologies that they can commercialize. So it's nearly any innovation that comes out of Stanford or Berkeley, they are, you know, it literally surrounded by a hundred, no, millions of people who are hungry to commercialize any new innovations that come out of those two schools. So, and MIT as well in Boston and Harvard as well. However, just down the street in Los Angeles or even in my uh, backyard of San Diego at UC San Diego, it wasn't until my senior year till I ran into one of the R&D centers and I saw back in, Jesus, 2000, um, some mind-blowing innovations that they had um, around uh, ways of managing traffic and all kind, of just truly bl mind-blowing stuff that no entrepreneur ever saw. Uh, but the lab had figured out some really crazy cool tech, and um, likely many of those weren't going to be commercialized. And and that's just in you know down the road in, in San Diego, where there's not you know the the same kind of armies of entrepreneurs and venture capitalists to fund those kinds of projects, but. Um, yeah, and I would just say it's the broader ecosystem. It's the marriage of the two. I mean, at the University of Minnesota, Medtronics, which is one of the world's leading biotech companies, was spun out of university research. But I think that it's it's about, you know, Stanford and Berkeley and the entrepreneurs who are, you know, they have constant contact. So it's not only about the university culture. It's also about, you know, who's in the broader community and how wedded they are in terms of going to happy hour and talking to each other and getting to know each other and sharing ideas. And I, I guess my point is that so often there is a wider gulf than not. Yeah. So there are also Ma Madison, Wisconsin, University of Toronto, Waterloo. There are some, you know, out of the ordinary 
yeah. schools also may, that are far away from these big let's get back to the, yeah okay that's great back to the tech headline cheryl what's up I just wanted to bring up uh, the concern that Vivian had yesterday, yeah. Chris. Yeah. Uh, so it's regarding, of course, the GMO seeds, whether, whether there will be any impact on the soil, especially on those places that you're going to sow the seed on those non-native uh, region. And uh, will it affect the biodiversity? Okay, of yeah. So it was Vivian yeah. came in when we were talking about this headline, uh, Chris, and she expressed concern about using bamboo seeds out of their native regions, so to speak, by introducing... Yes. I would say to anyone that basically brings up that point, I would strongly recommend looking at succession ecologies and looking at essentially how soils get built up. Typically what will happen is you'll have species that are basically very aggressive and basically very good at basically colonizing soils that are very sandy and that don't have very strong amounts of biomass. What will end up happening is over time, they basically get replaced by basically species that basically are um, succession ecologies but basically are better at taking advantage of the fact that now they're soil to work with and now essentially they've got they raise the water table bamboo is essentially something that's very very uh good at basically working in that at uh, succession ecology uh paradigm of basically establishing uh soils uh where they wouldn't be in, in otherwise essentially restoring degraded lands and the biodiversity actually increases in the areas that where bamboo is is put not not decreased and that's that's a very big part of what what makes it awesome we have actually um the name of my company is actually bamboo and because of that we're looking at that bamboo is um has the possibility to grow everywhere in the world even very humid or very dry places you know when the once the plant is dry and you water it again it will still grow again okay. it's extremely fast growing it is extremely flexible but it's one of the strongest materials even in construction you can use so i think there are many many um characteristics we make which make it extremely um valuable but again, said you, it grows basically everywhere. Yeah. Mm, no, I mean, you look look at the you Google the map bamboo belt to get a good idea of where well, it, it natively grows on the planet. That's where it's currently growing. Yeah, natively yeah. is one, but it, I'm not talking natively. That's yeah. just if you want to, you know, use it some, somewhere else, it also yeah, grows. That's Actually, the, I, have it, I have it in my yard in Switzerland here. Yeah, but that's the beauty of this point of this article that if it becomes more drought resistant, it ostensibly raises and lowers, you know, the latitudes of feasibility you might get a, you, it might make it far more applicable to Europe and America if it be this drought resistant uh, RNA edit with this protein, which would be fantastic because now you've got ten times more land that or not ten times double or triple the amount of geography Lots. where you can deploy it. Yeah. So fantastic. So um, tell him. yes, hey, just 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 a second uh, because I'm totally um, f to encourage people into this. We have to do it. And there are so much interesting solutions. Uh, just to be um, yeah, very aware about uh, yeah, the, the gigantic uh, huge uh, volume of the task. Think about bringing the ghost back into the bottle. Because what we have done is uh, from thousand and ten thousand and hundred thousand of years of forestation of the earth when the forests were there they were uh, deoxified and this is what we now know as coal and all okay. the fossil fuels well, please, and please, now please, we have please make them. a very yeah. strong short point what's those the main yeah. point you want to now make we think about we have oxid uh, we have put oxidation on them now they are in the atmosphere yeah this is the co2 result 
and now we have uh, returned the whole process. Yeah, uh, this is uh, really so gigantic, like nothing else in human history, because we have burned so much of it, and it's exactly the reverse process. And if you are planting, now is the point. If you are planting an acre of uh, bamboo, whether with RNA or not, it's not like a layman might think, and you are not layman, I know, uh, that now it takes all the CO2 out and creates a lot of oxygen, but you have to leave it there until it's grown, let's say, 10 meters high. And then it has to stay here to have uh, the carbon back into the plant. Uh, the yeah the, the CO2 back into the plant, but you cannot cut it. Yeah, you cannot harvest it because then you would burn it again, and it's a zero game then. So it's really so super huge. Yeah, and so we have also to to see other solutions, maybe in the uh, uh, in the ocean. I don't know. And our dilemma is that uh, the, the solution must be so big that the risk, of course, will be rather high. Uh, and we have to convince people about the risk. Thank you. So, so very briefly with things. So, so the um, uh, carbon drawdown in the ocean is also a great option. There's also kelp solutions. I've been looking at those recently. Yeah, but me too. Lose a nice one for, for quick implementation. Uh, when you're talking about how much land, you're looking about 30 tons per hectare is the norm. If, if, you, could RN, if you could RNA edit kelp, that would be a good big game changer oh, too, oh, I think. I'm looking forward to all these things. Like these yeah. are all essentially tools in the toolbox. And what? what's cool is you can basically combo them together to get like all sorts of cool things to paint what's politically available or economically, which is, is great. Um, one quick point I did want to raise is that uh, bamboo typically what, what's interesting about it is that most species, um, each comb is what they call the individual stalks or whatever, the individual poles. Um, the, each comb will essentially uh, last about five years and then it basically naturally dies off and just falls over. So typically what they do is they basically uh, will take little like fingernail polish or whatever, and they'll mark each, each comb and uh, they'll give, put a different one each year and they'll just harvest each comb essentially on year four, essentially. And so it's a continuous harvest cycle. This makes it a very, very different uh, carbon drawdown profile than a typical tree where essentially a tree will grow for 30 years, but really it only grows in the first like two or three sequestering carbon. The rest just kind of sits there. Um, and it takes a very long time for it to reach its full carbon drawdown potential. Very different from bamboo, where it's basically constantly growing and constantly bringing in uh, carbon, essentially either into the plant or into the soil around it. So it, it's very, very shiny in that regard. The on the yes, Chris, you would use the bamboo, right? Not we're not going on about ba- guys. We're not. This is not bamboo tech around the world. <laughs> Sorry. Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> okay, the first headline is the Google unveils the Pixel Six. And what, because they want to get a one month head start on the iPhone announcement that comes out almost exactly one month from now, as it has every year since the beginning, 2007. And Google knows that. And so Google very strategically announces their phone uh, to come out, you know, one month before the iPhone and they call theirs Pixel. So now this is the sixth Pixel, hence the name Pixel 6 with a 6.4 inch 990 megahertz display. And that's going to bump some people out but they do have the pixel 6 pro with the 6.7 inch 120 hertz display which is what everybody wants this new 120 hertz display and a 4x optimal uh optical zoom with google designed tensor um chip uh so and again it's just 
fantastic to see Google continue to take inspiration from Apple on their every step as the Apple made making their own chips. Now Google's making their own chips. And if people realized how easy that processor would to, is to make, people would have a very different opinion about this thing. It's literally <laughs> like you'd literally take a calculator, take 12 functions, and then you basically put hook it up to a bunch of memory. That is literally what they've got for essentially their entire AI processor. And they've got a lot of that. It, it, it's not uh, like a CPU where you have to encode like 3,000 different functions or something. Right. But the thing is, is that they've got the brilliant TensorFlow library that takes all their math and all their AI algorithms and shrinks into run of that. So that's that's all the magic there. Yeah. But it it's cool because more companies can do this on a more frequent basis. You don't have to be a tech trying to do it. It's something that it's a lot more accessible for groups these days. Yes, because Google's not a chip maker, so um, it's um, they haven't really done the the investment yet no doubt they are starting to internally because they like every big tech company that makes any amount of hardware want to kind of um become less dependent on chip manufacturers over time uh but it's this this, this tensor the chip, huh the chip shortage especially yeah yeah especially with the logistics showing that shortages are so easy you know yeah yep and then, are they going to make their own phones, do you think? Or are they going to continue to use, what is it, THC? Um, no. HTC. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, I don't know if HTC is making this one or not. Um, they did make the original Pixels. I don't know if that's still the case. Um, but it's a, it's a good point, which is they don't even do their own hardware production. But in a sense, neither, neither does Apple. You know, they're using Foxconn and you know Flextronics or whatever. So Google... Um, the Pixel Six, the to to Chris's point, this particular processor Tensor is uh, TensorFlow. Uh, actually, Megdi, you could jump in on this, I, I imagine. And, and Meg- so here's where. Uh, so I'm a little bit confused. I I thought this was a SOC like designed to compete or replace the Snapdragon. So no, those are more complicated than yeah. you know the AI chips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is system on a chip SOC which does make it a bit uh, it's a new kind of approach to developing hardware because you can run um multiple uh processes so to speak and make the whole it's kind of the brain um and then in this case if they really want to optimize for ai so that this device can do a essentially your google uh assistant will operate a lot better in this device because they have kind of created an architecture optimized for running Google assistant essentially. So, um, and I think that's going to create a user experience that is novel and unique and, and differentiates itself from, um, Apple iPhones, which I agree. I, I think Apple needs to make, uh, focus and improvements on Siri or people might start switching to, Android just because of if you see a, a significant benefit or difference in the performance of Google Assistant over Siri, that could become a a a, a, a distinguishing factor that people would ostensibly jump platforms for. I'm I kind of I want my... Scarlett Johansson from her. Like I want that level. Yeah, and Google's likely to get there before. Uh, Apple at, at, at looking at the rate of their, where they are allocating their resources and focuses. Google's going that direction and with creating her, Apple's not. They're focusing in a kind of different direction in terms of the allocation of resources. And I, 
my suspicion is Google might win uh, in the, here in the next few years if they continue with that strategy. And you might see iPhone folks switching over just because the AI gets so good that you you just use your phone as a voice input system and it intuitively starts to know everything you want to do in advance, you know, not due to the fact that Google has a strong AI emphasis in the company um, and Apple needs to recognize, I'm no doubt they understand that and recognize that and are doing what they can to address it. But um, so anyway, so that's, that's kind of what Pixel 6 is all about in, in a nutshell. So next big headline at this very moment is a sub headline to the first one. So this is 1.5. Google's Rick Osterlode demos Pixel 6 tensor system on a chip which enables real-time object detection and HDR in videos, as well as real-time translation and live captions. And, and this, these are all the use cases that are enabled by a AI system on a chip, as we were just highlighting. The big thing on there is real-time. So, so yes. just as a brief little thing, so we, we used a thing for Microsoft HoloLens for basically doing like, you know, the, the augmentation of visual stuff. One of the big things that separate our, our tech from a lot of other groups was that Everyone else is basically making cloud calls, which is great, except it takes you like, you know, five, 10 seconds round trip time, which dramatically affects user experience. Yep. All their interactions were basically happening within like, you know, sub, you know, 300 millisecond latency. You know, we were aiming for closer to about 100. And what's amazing about that is that when it, it drops below that, it's below perception time frame. So it becomes just an extension of the body at that point. Now, what's really important about this is that when you're talking about these functionalities, I, I want to say none, but almost very few of these functionalities are things that have, we haven't seen before. Except the thing is they're slow and laggy and feel really just eh, not quite there. Getting it to run in real time locally on the phone and having it accessible to everyone so you don't need to regard severe internet connection, that's a big deal on usability. And that's going to take push us over the, the, the foundation of something that's just going to be a, nice to have as a gimmick to show off to someone and something you could have on the operating system running all the freaking time every time you use the most used app on the phone, which is the camera. So it's going to be really, really cool. Well, camera and the messaging, but they're going to tie it into both of that just to inject it straight into the user experience. Yeah. It's essentially, to summarize, internally, they're referring to it as ambient computing. And as this article correctly points out, it says, with the Pixel 6, the new Tensor chip, we're about to see how Google will use AI and machine learning to really push its vision of ambient computing, which is using Google Assistant as an extension of your own brain in the same way that you use the Google search engine as an extension of your brain, where it's kind of, you put you do input and you get immediate response. And that's the key. And Google has focused on that from year one with that immediacy of response is what creates habitual behaviors in users and locked in, you know, user dependency where you, you, you won't, that's why you've never abandoned the Google search engine. And likely never will because it's become a subconscious behavior. And once they've got that, they know they've got you. And once they can do that on the phone with ambient computing, where it's kind of voice controlled or they even uh, um, proactively understand what you're likely to do next, um, then they will really have you. And they'll, you know, the, you're going to start seeing all kinds of amazing use cases. And it's that immediacy breaking that five second delay that five second delay you're not building a habit out of that and they know that and that's why they had to put the system on the chip and not in the cloud so that to get that sub um, millisecond response for when you talk to the google assistant or when you hold up the camera here's a great example you hold up your camera in this ar because we're you know we're not far away from having the goggles either but this is where it gets really big 
you hold up your phone in camera mode and you're looking, you know, to take a photo, but now every product that you look at, every plant you look at, it yep. can tell you the name of the plant in real time. Every dog you look at, it'll tell you the breed of the dog. If every person you look at, this is where Clearview comes in, it could tell you the person instantly. <laughs> if it, if the ones that you facially recognize, maybe they could start, ah, that, that gets really wild. But you, more importantly, any product you look at, it knows what that product is. It knows that those are Nike Air Jordans from 1985, and here's how much they cost right now on online platforms near you, and can one click have delivered. And that use case alone, there's endless use cases that we could go into, but that particular one is perhaps the most uh, economically viable ROI, return on investment of uh, use case. The most lucrative use case is recognizing every product near you instantly with no delay, like uh, seamlessly point your camera at something and without the delay of going to the cloud and back this five second delay, you just hold your camera up and boom, instantly the price is a floating little bubble next to any product in any store that you walk around. You no longer need to search on Amazon for anything. The price is right there in the camera in real time. And then you click on the little bubble of the price and it tells you everything about the product and the reviews are probably right there as well. You Or maybe it has the price tag and the actual star. It says 4.5 stars or 4.2 stars or 4.9 stars on any product that you move around inside of any store that you're walking in or whatever. So that alone could be transformative, but we're talking about the phone because we don't yet have the AR glasses, which are coming very, 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 very soon. And when we switch over to the glasses, the as we just learned from Facebook, who's expect, they've announced, Mark Zuckerberg has said, their glasses are coming out before the end of the year. And that the glasses we have every all of the strong indicators are that it will work off of your phone, which could be your Android phone, which could be this Pixel 6, which has the system on a chip. And now you've got the glasses, which are a partnership with Ray-Ban, which is essentially just a camera, you know, in the corner of your glasses that feeds into your phone that does the it's connected via Bluetooth that could do the real time um, system on a chip, AI image recognition instantly show you the price of everything. And although, no, the prices would need to be a cloud pull because all of that data of the prices... Not necessarily. No? You're going to have to preload these. Well, here's the really, really interesting thing is because you're going to have to preload so many signatures uh, in advance for what you're going to be scanning for visually, you can also preload metadata essentially for things for like, you know, the market provider and the other parts. You could have recent price points on that. You could have it where when you GPS detect, they already do this for push marketing, ah, right. essentially notifications, Bluetooth, when you walk into a store, it's right. like, oh, the person's in the store, they're shopping Correct. or something. You could just preload the entire store catalog onto your phone. And because AI compression is magic, you could basically, I mean, that you're looking at like a 10 megabyte file to essentially have every product in the store visually recognizable. Um, one of the big things is that the phones are even the glasses with things. One of the biggest technical challenges they're running into is just the fact that, well, to two of them. One is that the battery is very, let's do the battery one for now, but the, the battery essentially uh, runs down the, 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 the stuff so much, you can only run these for about like, you know, 20 minutes or 30 minutes before essentially you run all, all, all of juice. The reason why a custom chip actually becomes a technical necessity isn't just round trip latency. It's also the fact that, well, you can actually run it without uh, without draining on the battery on the phone because you can run it very hyper energy efficient when you build it just for that application. And that's that's basically what we're getting out of these things. So always on. 
yeah. Anyway, so it's it's this Google, but well, as this article correctly points out, it says uh, the Pixel Six R. My biggest takeaway is that Google is incredibly confident when it comes to this launch. Um, uh, uh, but with the Pixel 6, Google isn't just doubling down on AI and machine learning. It's trying to capitalize on more than five years of research and development in a significant way. While it's still too early to call the Pixel 6 a success, we'll have to wait until uh, next you know month when people get their hands on it. But the point is <clears throat> that, indeed, they've been focusing on <clears throat> the, this AI wonderfulness, and now they need a device uh, that can take advantage of it. And to do that, they need to upgrade the device with this system on a chip uh, Tensor, which is AI, uh, the AI system, TensorFlow is where people build these AI algorithms and stuff. And that's the the phone is optimized, the device is optimized to take advantage of the years of AI innovation that Google's been doing. Um, Sid's not here, but I'm pretty sure Apple has had this since A12, right? Their neural networks built into their processors. Yeah, but they don't have quite the AI teams uh, and offerings for lack of a better word um it's not this not quite up to the same level that google's at they they, they yeah, optimize internally they things. have it internally they have the problem is that google relies very heavily on the external developer ecosystem and the fact that they've got system partnerships apple will just buy you and if you're inside the apple like you they bought your thing it works fantastic for the very specific applications they've allowed you to build uh, Google is more of a, hey, here's the platform, just, you know, have fun, you know, have fun with it, just don't touch the radios, because um, they, 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 they for the SEC. Um, <laughs> but but the, the, thing, the thing that's important about this is that those chips, essentially, uh, Pixel phones have basically historically been something of a reference device, essentially saying, hey, look, here's, here's Android done right with every single function that we could basically put on here. We didn't have to do any compromise for the carriers or for ship dates or anything else like that. So when they're saying, here's a system on a chip, what they're really saying is that their carriers saying, hey, look, you can do this too. The IP cores are over here. Here's the vendors. And this is how you basically build a Google phone. And so all the other vendors say, oh, we want to build a device that's like that kind of thing. And now they have the ability to basically copy and paste those the system on chips to their own designs. And now they've got Android, you know, has another decade in the sun. Okay, next big headline. So there's a lot behind this Pixel 6 that I think most people are not aware of unless they we're had the pleasure of join, joining Chris here in tech news. So thank you for that, Chris. The next big article at this very moment is that Twitter partners with Reuters and AP who will provide context and highlight links from trusted sources for trends, moment search, and more. Twitter announced today. This is really interesting news. We the, tried to kill off journalism. We just a, decided it's like, oh, wait, we need to have some of those guys back to take the heat well, for us. Yes and no, because now they're playing favorites, which is likely to piss of off all, every, all the other journalists. So, by the way, because I, I remember recommending in the earliest days of Twitter, when there was only 20 people on the whole team uh, meeting with the founders, like, why not have like a Twitter news desk where you start to curate the most interesting stuff? And, you you know, and then you, you can't do that because you're competing with all the other news outlets, you know, to, to <laughs> do all that. But now, here, essentially, this now headline, here, here we are, uh, 2021, that was back in 2006, seven. Here we are, you know, 25 years later um, or 15 years later. Sorry. Twitter announced today it's partnering with news organizations, AP and Reuters. And by the way, all the other news organizations are like, fuck you guys <laughs> uh, to expand its efforts focused on highlighting reliable news and information on its platform. 
through the new through the new agreements, Twitter's curation team. This is now you're becoming a publisher when you do this. Be careful with the language the around this stuff. Regulations coming anyway. Well, they lobbyists in position. Bye bye section two thirty. If you start having your curation team starts being perceived as a editor. As soon as you're an editor, you're a publisher. As soon as you're a publisher, you don't have Section 230. You've lost your platform protections. Now you're responsible for everything that happens on on your website. You're no longer a platform where everyone can say whatever they want, you know, without uh, restriction. You're now a publication, and you're responsible for everything that gets said in that publication. And that's why the New York Times often gets sued, even by our friend Charles, who has a lawsuit. Against, you know, he's suing publishers regularly who, you know, libel and do all that. So. Um, they got to be careful with this. Twitter's curation team will be able to leverage the expertise of the partnered organizations to add more context to the news and trends that circulate across Twitter, as well as aid with the company's use of public service announcements during high visibility events, misinformation labels, and more. Currently, the curation team works to add additional information to content that includes top trends and other news on Twitter's Explore tab. And notice they're highlighting how they add content and not reduce content because that's what then you get into edit, edit, editing and that's where you get in deep shit. The team is also involved with how certain search results are ranked. Uh-oh. That's where you start to get in a little dicey trouble as well. To ensure that the content from high-quality searches appear at the top of search results when certain keywords or hashtags are searched for on Twitter, the team may also be involved with the prompts that appear in the explore tab on the home timeline related to major events like public health emergencies such as the pandemic or other events like elections and they may help with the misinformation labels and appear on tweets that are allowed to remain more visible on twitter but are labeled with informative context from authoritative sources these include tweets that violate twitter's rules around manipulated media election integrity and COVID 19. however the team operates separately from twitter's trust and safety team with that's the team that does take stuff down, which determines when tweets violate Twitter's guidelines and punitive action like removals or bans must be taken. Twitter confirmed that neither AP nor Reuters will be involved in those sorts of enforcement actions, rather obviously. But work by working more directly with AP and Reuters, who also partner with Facebook on facts checks, Twitter says it will be able to increase the speed and scale to which it's able to add this additional information to tweets and elsewhere on its platform in particular. That means in times where news is breaking and when facts are in dispute on a story emerges, Twitter's own team will be able to quickly turn to these more trusted sources to improve how contextual information is added to the conversations taking place on Twitter. This could also be useful in stopping misinformation from going viral. Twitter's new crowdsource fact-checking system called Birdwatch, which is kind of humans acting like Wikipedia editors in real time, the comment on tweets that get flagged, will also leverage feedback from AP and Reuters to help determine the quality of information shared by Birdwatch participants. So long story short now, when there's uh, contentious stuff happening and it's not clear what the facts are, rather than Twitter trying to make a decision as to what the facts are, which they often get in very deep shit for doing, especially around they were silencing people who around the lab leak theory, for example, picking one example out of out of a potential haystack of examples. When the, you know, months ago, when the lab leak theory was uh, unkosher and they were trying to remove people discussing that. 
and kind of hiding that information. And they didn't know Twitter gets in the difficult position, the impossible position of policing what news is real and isn't, which they are a platform. They they should not be in that business. That is not their business to to be the policeman of what news is fake news and not. They don't know. They're not journalists. They're not out there finding the facts. AP and Reuters are. And now you understand why they need that partnership, because now they can delegate and defer and step out of the limelight in that issue and be like, ah, no, now we're going to let AP and Reuters essentially be the guidance of, you know, truthiness around what new what's the reality around all of these narratives that are developing in real time around the planet. So when somebody puts up an article that may be fake news or not, we don't know. Is it a breaking story? And I'm going to give you a great example as soon as this story is over. Um, when, when a really contentious headline comes up and Twitter doesn't know if it's real or not, AP and Reuters is likely to be a, a reliable source for being able to verify if something is truthiness or not. And so they'll defer to that and they'll just add AP or Reuters related headlines on top of this, you know, New York Post story or Huffington Post story or, you know, uh, what's another good BuzzFeed story? Because the BuzzFeed story might be real. It might not. And now they're using AP and Reuters as a litmus, as a measure of, you know, they can overlay their headlines right next to it to be like, well, here's what a here's what a more reliable news source is saying about this particular narrative. Okay, problem solved. Now we've given the user additional uh, context to make a decision, an informed decision as to whether or not this Huffington Post or Vox article is uh, fake news or not. So that's essentially what it's all about. But now here's a here's a wild example. Check this out. We saw a headline when we gathered here 12 hours ago. Oh boy, did we find an interesting headline. Um, and the headline was from the source is New York Post, which yeah, yeah this is one of those uh, outlets that from time to time they have real news and they have fake news. They have both, right? And the headline is and this came out, um, it was three hours old when we read it 12 hours ago. So it's 15 hours old at this moment. And the headline is, and there's more than meets the eye to this headline, by the way. I've done some investigating journalism of my own, and I found out something about this headline. So take this all with a bit of grain of salt as I read it. It says, Taliban members are reportedly running chat rooms on Clubhouse. From 15 hours yeah. ago, New York Post. And the article says members of the Taliban are running chat rooms within the app where they discuss their plans for the future of Afghanistan. As the Taliban sweeps across Afghanistan, some members of the Islamic terrorist group are apparently making time to log into Clubhouse, a trendy audio based social media app. Taliban spokesman spokespeople are running chat rooms with the app where they discuss religion and their plans for the future of Afghanistan, which is rapidly falling into the extremist group's control amid the withdrawal of American troops. Agents France Press responded. That's AFP. And AFP is kind of like the Reuters of Europe, uh, an easy way to say it. And where there's a quote, the Taliban call, the, there's a quote from somebody who was in the room with the Taliban. And the quote is, the Taliban called me rude and cut my mic after I spoke the truth about them. <laughs> <laughs> 
Haina Shaheba Malik, an Afghan clubhouse user who joined a Taliban room, told AFP. They openly declared those of us calling for human rights as infidels and deserving of death. Club, And then the article continues. Clubhouse terms of service uh, forbid <laughs> Im- immoral, racist, and discriminatory behavior um, based on race, ethnicity, national origin, caste, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, religious affiliation, age. This is, we need this platform during Iraq. Seriously, this would have made things a little bit more interesting. I, yeah, well, that's what led me to think we should get the... But I, I proposed a wild idea that maybe we get the, the Taliban in here to talk with the president oh, of Afghanistan man. because that is <laughs> they what yeah hold on so um yeah the the this this was the headline and then the article continues the AFP first covered the Taliban's use of clubhouse on July 16th uh so 2 weeks ago this Saturday, a Taliban spokesperson was once again live on the app calling for better relations between Afghanistan and Iran while praising the country's theocratic system of government, according to a nonprofit South Asia Media Research Institute, which monitors Taliban communications. A clubhouse spokesperson denied that the group tolerates terrorist group or that that the group terror. I think they mean the app tolerates terrorist groups. Ah, there is a quote here in the story from Clubhouse prohibits terror groups and their members, the spokesperson told The Post. We work with tech against terrorism, as well as other subject matter experts and industry leaders to ensure that users of this nature are permanently removed from the platform. So that I guess Clubhouse has made an official statement that they don't welcome the Taliban. Content on Clubhouse, which gained a right, and then they talk about Elon Musk and whatnot. Clubhouse policies also explain explicitly prohibit users from recording or quoting statements made through the app. But some Afghan clubhouse users told AFP that the Taliban is recording clubhouse sessions in order to mark critics for future retribution. Uh, A Taliban spokesperson who also operates a Twitter account with 232,000 followers denied threatening opponents on clubhouse in a statement to AFP. Social media is becoming increasingly important for the Taliban as the group looks to usurp uh, Afghan's U.S.-backed government. Almost half of the country's 37 million residents have internet access and 13 million use social media. AFP reported making apps like Clubhouse an important way to reach Afghans. So, Tyler, um, Tyler last session, and um, so CEO uh, Paul was here with things in Clubhouse. He's not in the audience right now, but this would have been a wonderful time just to invite him to the stage. Hey, what do, what do you think about the Taliban on the Clubhouse? Was here last here night, Chris. Yeah, he was here while yeah, we, he was we here. talked about Bye. it for an hour, yeah. and he was here. Well, okay. yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay. So it's, what, do you have any official but statements on the, the Taliban factor? It's, it's, it's impromptu. So here, it's a wild concept. and But, I mean, now that actually this is additional context, because that uh, – additional paragraphs i had not this was the first time i'm noticing them myself where there's this new statement from clubhouse spokespeople which very unambiguously state they don't welcome terrorists and clubhouse prohibits terrorist groups and their members the spokesperson told the both we work with so i assume they're referring to the taliban and so they're going to not the taliban won't be allowed on the platform which um that would explain um paul's uh hesitation to sure come on stage <laughs> <laughs> they're taliban yeah they've been taliban they're still on the terrorist group uh, list there's like an actual physical list that they have of all the different things they're still on that one right yeah um so yeah it started on july 16th but then it uh, apparently they're 
been on more recently because the headline was yesterday was about this new person who took to Twitter. And when did she take to Twitter to make her tweets about having her mic cut? She she kind of left the room in a huff and got went to Twitter because uh, she got she got another platform where she's actually heard free speech. Yeah. She got her mic muted and she took to Twitter to express her discontent with the Taliban, you know, cutting her mic off. So uh, the question is, when did she do her tweets? Because maybe, you know, then it, you could make the argument that they're still active on the app or whatever. Who knows? Because it's all they're they're likely speaking in um, Pashtun. Uh, no, yeah, I mean, they're speaking in their local language, which is either Urdu or Pashtun. And so unless you've got a translator, we don't really know what was said in those rooms anyway. So and there was also an article that they had done an interview with a journalist from Iran. And, and some Pashtun, uh, with the Taliban are Pashtun, and they some of them speak uh, Persian because it borders with Iran. And so um, they were talking about Iran formally recognizing the Taliban as the new government of Afghanistan, which the Taliban is desperate for people to do that. China's the first to do it, essentially. And um, anyway, so it's it's wild. But I, by the way, what the thing that I thought was interesting is the Taliban is now pressuring the Afghan leadership government, for lack of a better word, into a negotiation to either do a power sharing government for Afghanistan or if that's not going to happen, then, of course, they'll have a duel to the end to see who's going to rule uh, Afghanistan. So they're either going to they're going to have a conversation at some point. Uh, it's And the Taliban's very outwardly vocal about saying, hey, we're not interested in fighting. Well, let's sit down and talk about if we're going to have a power sharing agreement for Afghanistan. And thus far, the Afghan leadership is not engaging. And if they continue to not engage, the Taliban's letting kind of uh waiting for a response and if they don't respond then eventually it will turn into hot conflict and then we'll see uh, the result of that arm wrestling match who ends up um uh you know as the last person standing to, as the new leadership of uh uh afghanistan so I, my proposal was if they're going to have that conversation um, why not have it in clubhouse that would be <laughs> that's a historical conversation to determine the future of Afghanistan. And um, although they do have a spokesperson who speaks English and the, the president of Afghanistan does also speak English. So potentially they could do it in English and that would just be mind blowing to be able to listen into that conversation publicly. Anywho, it seems as though we now have our answer that clubhouse is not welcoming that. I totally respect that. I totally understand that. <laughs> and that's your call. It's your platform. So I think that's around the time that I woke up from my 2 a.m. nap and Faraz popped back in and Tim a question about it. He said, uh, no, I don't want to interview the Taliban <laughs> last night, to yeah. say the least. <laughs> so other. Oh, we got to get through the top big headlines because we just got through Twitter and Reuters. We've only covered two headlines thus far. So we got well, we went deep. We went. We, we are going deep. Uh, they're interesting headlines worth going deep on. The next big headline, number three, is from The Guardian and others. The French government found proof of Pegasus malware on three French journalists' phones and has referred to its findings to the Paris Public Prosecutor's Office. Announcement is first time an independent and official authority has corroborated Pegasus project findings. 
so this article says, French intelligence investigators have confirmed that Pegasus spyware has been found on the phones of three journalists, including a senior member of staff at the country's international television station, France 24. It is the first time an independent, uh, to kind of regurgitating here, a cons- oh yeah, it's, it's, it's essentially corroborating the findings of the Pegasus project, a consortium of 17 media outlets, including The Guardian and uh, a Paris, not, uh, they're based in Paris themselves. So, um, and that was the original source of the 50,000 number list. And now they're finding out who in the country has had Pegasus. And now they're na- starting to name names, as we said they would. So that's um, the Washington Post has an article uh, somewhat related uh, saying uh, the government's facing a severe shortage of cyber workers when it needs them the most. And there's a related article we touched on in the last meeting from NBC News about female journalists from Al Jazeera who had their personal photos leaked on Twitter which they know were private photos that were never sh- ever shared off of their phone of them in bikinis in jacuzzis, which in the Middle East is kind of um, kind of a hot topic in the West that people would think nothing of it. Yeah. So um, the f- not only were they leaked, but they were being mocked by official government representatives of Saudi Arabia. And that's how why they believe that Saudi Arabia, which it was already confirmed that Saudi Arabia had hacked Kasoji and his wife's phone. And then prior to Kasoji entering the Istanbul embassy, where after his phone was hacked, he personally got hacked. Um, And then now these Al Jazeera female journalists are saying they also were hacked. Their photos were leaked and they were mocked. And oh, and by the way, they were critical of the Saudi regime in their Al Jazeera articles just as Kosoji was. So uh, they're understandably a little um, tense at the moment, a little anxious and um, yeah, further, further fuel to the fire that uh, the Saudis were using Pegasus against journalists that were speaking unfavorable of them. So that's, that's those headlines. The French journalist, the French journalists and the government, the French government and their, um, intelligence agencies have confirmed that their French journalist and the editor of their biggest um, TV outlet was hacked by Pegasus. The question is, which country in that case? The next big article is from the EFF, Electronic Frontier Foundation, who do um, very nice work in helping people. It's kind of like the ACLU of the internet is one way to think of it, perhaps. Anyway, but they're more geeky. They understand tech. And um, so this headline is the confusing language in the infrastructure bills. Crypto provisions suggest that nearly any entity in crypto is a broker and must collect their users data. Very interesting. And this is what the EFF does very well, because they've got legit geeks who legit understand technical issues such as this, which a traditional journalist do not. (laughs) So. They are uh, a, a bit of a publication. You know, they have a website that people follow and they're now doing um, God's work here on their website, which I got to tweet this out so that you can see the website for yourself. And they're basically now they've done, they've looked at this infrastructure bill that's coming out of, you know, Washington, D.C. And this bill uh, is related to crypto. It was going to essentially tax crypto. And this infrastructure bill is, you know, 800 
billion dollars to improve the infrastructure of America. And some of the funding for it was going to be um, a, to, to oversimplify sort of tax uh, crypto land. Right. Tyler, just to, to clear something up, mm-hmm. cryptos are already taxable. Mm-hmm. It's just not enforced. So this is really an enforcement mechanism. Okay. Okay. There's already treated as a capital gain, but there's no right. reporting. So people don't do it. So this is more an enforcement mechanism okay. than a new tax. Yeah. And what this EFF is now found by going through the infrastructure bill with a with a microscope is that the forthcoming Senate draft of Bill Biden's infrastructure bill, which is 2,000 pages, um, was designed to update the U.S. roads, highways, and digital infrastructure, contains a poorly crafted provision that could create new surveillance requirements for many within the blockchain ecosystem. This could include developers of little blockchain startups and others who do not control digital assets on behalf of the users. By design, by the way, that's that's kind of the whole point of non-custodialship of blockchains is we don't want to control these digital assets of these users. That's the whole entire point of Bitcoin originally by Satoshi Nakamoto is we don't control it. It runs autonomously, non-custodial. There's nobody managing it. It runs on its own weak and nor can we stop it even if we wanted it to. That's the entire premise of Satoshi's Bitcoin and blockchain that that Bitcoin runs on. That's the whole point. And so now they're saying the government, as the governments do, are saying, you know what? We don't like things like that because it's uncontrollable. It's wild. It's digital anarchy. We don't like anarchy. We're a government. You must control it. So it's the bear hug, as Amey and I and others in in the crypto world refer to it. While the language is still evolving, the proposal would seek to expand the definition of a quote-unquote broker under Section 6045C-1 of the Internal Revenue Code of 1986 to include anyone who is responsible for the regularly providing any service effectuating transfers of digital assets. Gotcha, Satoshi. Hey, Satoshi, we got you. IRS got your number, baby. You're done. IRS rule right here, 6045C1 says, and I quote, responsible for and regularly providing a service effectuating transfers of digital assets. That's a Bitcoin. It's a digital asset. We got you. Checkmate, Satoshi. You're done. IRS, we got you. Guilty as charged. And so because you're providing a service, that's the words, of transfers of digital assets, that's what your blockchain does. And thus, you are responsible. You can pretend that you're not. It can run on its own even while you're in jail. That's fine. You're still responsible. You're offering the service. So on behalf of another person, these newly defined, quote unquote, brokers, that's that's the legal word, uh, would be required to comply with IRS reporting requirements for brokers, including filing form 1099s with the IRS. That means they would have to collect user data, including names, users' names, and addresses. Oh, boy. Goodbye, blockchains. You're done. Bye-bye. You're all done. All of you. The broad, confusing language leaves open a door for almost any entity within the cryptocurrency ecosystem to be considered a broker. Yeah, that's intentionally. They're not stupid. <laughs> they want to they want to control it all. This is the official legal bear hug hidden within this 2000 page infrastructure bill. And if this bill passes, 
Bye-bye crypto land. You're done forever, over. You are brokers. You are now legally responsible in America to provide the names and addresses of anybody on your blockchains. Game over. Checkmate. Bye-bye. Bitcoin goes to zero. So uh, why the Bitcoin community hasn't read this 2,000-page bill? Well, they probably have other things to do. You know, there's there's good episodes of... It's like 2,700 uh, pages. I think I have in my hard drive right now with things. It's ridiculous. They, they've there's got, no way the senders have read it. They've got some, you know, uh, cartoons to watch and video games to play, and they've not yet had the moment, you know, to pause and read this 2,000-page infrastructure bill. Yeah, in the metaverse. Yeah, in the metaverse. Yeah, in the blockchain. Hang around. I don't. Yeah, can you read the infrastructure bill in the metaverse? That's a great question. Go ahead, Ken. No, I was I was going to point out that that provision with the crypto is critical to the whole bill because at least in theory, it's the only revenue mechanism they have to pay for this stuff because they they voted against everything else in terms of you know you know raising taxes or doing you know more audits of high net worth people. So this is it. So in order to kind of pass that budget test. This has to stay in there, otherwise there's no infrastructure bill. That's sad. Yeah, well, is they're already they've already done no the crypto. they already know that it's likely to pass. They've kind of done the warm up votes or whatnot yet, Cheryl. No, I'm just wondering how come we have no crypto person on stage today. We can't ask. Well, someone will pop in in a minute. Indeed, perhaps yeah. this extremely broad interpretation was not even the intent of the drafters of this language. No, I, I would argue it probably was very intentional. But given the rapid timeline for the bill's likely passage, those answers may not be resolved before it hits the Senate floor for a vote. Some may wonder why an infrastructure bill primarily focused on topics like highways is even attempting to address as complex and evolving topic as digital privacy and cryptocurrency. The provision is actually buried in the section of the bill relevant to covering the cost of the proposals. In general, bills that seek to offer new government services must explain how the government will pay for those services. This can be done through increasing taxes or by somehow improving tax compliance. The cryptocurrency provision in this bill is an attempt to do just that. The argument, well, I just said. Yeah. The argument is that by engaging in more rigorous surveillance of the cryptocurrency community and, and making it fall squarely under the jurisdiction of the IRS, the Biden administration will see more tax revenue flow from this community without actually increasing taxes and thus be able to cover the $28 billion of its $2 trillion infrastructure plan. Basically, it's presuming that huge swaths of cryptocurrency users are engaged in mass tax avoidance without providing any evidence of that. It doesn't need to. It's kind of a given. Make no mistake, there's a clear and substantial harm in ratcheting up financial surveillance and forcing more actors within the blockchain ecosystem to gather data on users, which by design, it was designed not to do that. It was specifically with the stated purpose of was built, architected with the stated purpose of not collecting this data that the government's now saying, no, now legally, if you want to exist in the U.S., you will have to collect that data. The, the only thing they have yet to do is actually name the penalty. Well, then you're now under the jurisdiction of the IRS and you'll now be found guilty of whatever the IRS punishments are for not complying with IRS demands, which is jail time. You know, you can ask uh, what was the, uh, the, the, the home, the lady who, who went to jail. Um, Leona Hemsley? No, well, her too. No, the cooking lady. Um, oh, Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart. 
No, she went. She went to jail for for lying about it inside the trade. Basically, for oh lying yeah, she was insider trading. You're right. Fair point. Make no mistake. There's a clear and substantial. Oh yeah. So requiring new surveillance of everyday users of cryptocurrency. Oh, it says, including including this provision in the infrastructure bill will do the four following things: require new surveillance of everyday users of cryptocurrency. Yeah. Well, they that's what they're not. They got into cryptocurrency to do exactly not that. Force software creators and others who do not who do not custody cryptocurrency for their users to implement cumbersome surveillance systems on top of services in the United States. Create more honeypots of private information about cryptocurrency users that could attract malicious actors and create more legal complexity to developing blockchain projects or verifying transactions in the United States, likely leading to more innovation moving overseas. Yes, it will force everyone out of the U.S. who has anything to do with this. Absolutely, hundred percent. Because they're not going to risk jail time now for their little cryptocurrency startup, or or any crypto startup, uh, blockchain based startup. Furthermore, it is impossible for miners to develop and developers to comply with these reporting requirements. Yep, uh, by design, these parties have no way to gather that type of information. Exactly, that's right, <laughs> and they know that. And that's why they're shutting the whole party down. The police have just showed up at your door. Hello, you got a party going on. Your party's over. Go home or you're going to be arrested. That's effectively what this is. And so in the short term, they will need to leave America completely, physically, geographically, and maybe even go to places that don't have um, uh, um, whatever, you know, Bring the, the the agreements to bring people back into the U.S. They'll have to go. They'll likely extradition. Extradition. extradition they'll likely go to states that don't have extradition treaties with the U.S. So Elizabeth, how, how Elizabeth Warren is licking her lips right now on this, and uh, Michael Saylor is putting on the boxing gloves. That's my simple read. Well, on here it. here's the other problem: is they could you could have a, a a crypto startup of any kind, right? And they now realize ah shit game over we have to leave america bad news everybody uh we're moving to some state that doesn't have extradition treaty with america so they move to russia then they uh but they still have their startup and their startup has users in america america's gonna say ah we we need that data of those people and that's what's going to force them to go to non extradition because if they go to a state a country that has an extradition treaty with america uh, the irs is going to say ah that's nice you went to thailand that's fine uh, you have users in america on your blockchain we can see them here uh, we need all of their addresses and phone numbers or uh, thailand's going to arrest you due to the extradition treaty send you back home and we will put you in a jail cell until such time that you do hand over the names and emails of all of the american users on your blockchain Simple. Tyler, let me make two other, two other points here, by the way. Because a lot of, of the stuff is owned by Americans, no matter where this thing gets moved, all the IRS, would, even if they moved it to some foreign country, the IRS will probably just put a question on the tax forms, which already generally exist, about like foreign bank accounts. And it will say, do you own any crypto anywhere? We don't care. And you could either you know, tell the truth or lie. But if they catch you, that's, that's tax fraud for an American. So it's it, so you're still going to have if everyone gets concerned about this, Americans basically hitting the exits, you know, hitting the bid, so to speak, you know, that would kill the price in, in the short term, you know. Mm -hmm. And you don't even have to go to a weird country, by the way, in terms of extradition, uh, not having extradition for financial crimes, because I don't think the Swiss will extradite 
on a financial crime to the United States. They'll extra, extradite on murder or something, but they won't extradite on a financial crime. Nonetheless, if you've got Swiss bank accounts or any kind of Swiss, you know, you're supposed to declare it. So I still think it's a problem. Hmm. I know Sweden will. <laughs> um, after Julian Assange. So, John, and John McAfee. Yeah, yeah. That well, he was in Spain. Yeah. Well, that was financial. Yeah, he, that was that. That was a precisely IRS. That's who. That was uh, McAfee. Was an IRS case. It, they were trying to get well, him taxes. Well, Mongolia doesn't have an extradition treaty. With well, there the you US. go, Vinay. We're all moving to Mongolia, baby. Mongolia Valley or uh, <laughs> Silicon Silicon Eagles or what are we going to call it uh, when we set up our. Crypto community yeah, I thought Mongolia, Mongolia already banned mining. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> inner, that's right. <laughs> well, that's Inner Mongolia, by the way. This is separate. Uh, that's China's claimed territory of Mongolia, Inner Mongolia, which is where a lot of the coal-powered mining was happening previously. The bill could also create uncertainty about the ability to conduct cryptocurrency transactions directly with others via open source code, uh, including smart tracks and decentralized exchanges, while remaining anonymous. The ability to, to transact directly with others anonymously is fundamental to civil liberties as financial records provide an intimate window into a person's life. So this will force everyone doing anything in crypto to be fully anonymous and fully decentralized is essentially what it's going to do. It's kind Tyler. of like when you when you criminalize drugs or alcohol or prohibition or whatever, it's going to force everyone to go deep underground and be very deeply hidden and everything else. Yes, I may. I was just going to say that this is also something that Nicholas is doing with the identity product, right? Mm -hmm. There's a level where, of course, from those that are not doing nefarious things, the people that want to be mostly hidden tend to be those that are, in, in my humble observation, those that want to A, avoid taxes, or B, hide their wealth you know, or hide their dealings. So that's three points, right? But what Nicholas is speaking of is how to sort of also allow for that identity layer to be in there for those people that are just doing it because they don't want people in their business. You know what I'm saying? Like they're doing, they're doing good stuff. They just don't want people in the business, in their, in their business, in their affairs. Because like even now, like with the centralized bank, you know, the bank sees all the transactions, but like my neighbor doesn't see all the transactions. And I think that's where there's like that sort of, I think that's where people start to get like a little bit crazy with the centralized, decentralized and anonymity because nothing's anonymous on the blockchain. I mean, you could trace it, you could look at it, you could find it. You know, it's not, it's not hard. But if people have an assumption that it could be done, I think it'd be better to sort of recognize that even when I took my test for Chainless, it's very, it's not super complicated if you know what to look for, how to find it. And it's not very complicated to see where wallets are being used for nefarious things. And I think, Tyler, you know what I'm talking about. Like, I mean, if you see three or four transactions and you see normal, normal amounts, and then all of a sudden out of nowhere, you see this crazy amount going to this other wallet. And then you check that wallet and you notice that they're getting crazy amounts from somewhere else. You're going to start to wonder what that other wallet is that's receiving everything, right? You're going to start to just put that critical strategic thinking, that sort of investigative reporter thinking and be like, well, okay, what's in that wallet? Who does that wallet belong to? And then by the context of that, you start to put together pieces of the puzzle and locate who the owner of that wallet is. And I don't think it's impossible to find. I think it's a misnomer that people think it's, it's anonymity and it's not hard to find. I actually think that 
those individuals that want to find it have been in here for a while. And I think Charles was also kind of alluding to that as well, right? This is not something where they're not in here. They're in here already. They're just basically figuring out how to herd cats right now. You know, how, what is the best strategy to not piss off the public but, and not sort of create a, a revolution, but also how to keep people safe and keep the system or the new system evolving to the point that it serves the unbanked as well not just those that are banked and not just the 1%, but those 99% that are unbanked and don't have that wealth and still need to generate that. So the other approach is that, uh, it's there based on the wording of this bill or the, these, these, uh, this part of the bill that's related to these provisions around um, cryptocurrency or crypto, generally it says uh, it. The headline again reads, the cryptocurrency surveillance provision buried in the infrastructure bill is a disaster for digital privacy, meaning because they're going to force identity verification, which also dovetails with the point I'm making, which is the government is understanding um, the need for identity verification um, writ large. Uh, on blockchains right. and yeah. in social networks. And but this, this is, is yep. why Nicholas' yeah. Nicholas project is quite interesting, right? Because it's a bit like, do you want them to do your identity project? Or do you want something where you could have at least some understanding of what the, the identity project is? Okay. So, like, that gonna, would be my question. Let me ping Nicholas into the room here real fast here. Let me get a link to the room. If someone can stall for 10 seconds here. Tyler, did you notice that there's the, uh, in the upgrade of the app, there's some new ways to ping people into the room. When you click the bottom right plus, you have an option to share, tweet, and copy the link now. Like, it's really nice and seamless. So you could actually tweet it out, too. Yeah, I'm, I'm not on the app. I'm on yeah, Club Deck. Yeah, he's using Club Deck. So, uh, it's okay. I'll do it for you. Yeah, um, I just pinged him, and we'll see if he can pop in. It's late over there in California. But um, it's you're right. It's right up his alley. So worst case, we'll, we'll have him probably in here tomorrow at this time because this is so perfectly right up his alley. So uh, <laughs> until Nicholas comes back here, the next big story at this very moment is, oh, shoot. Hold on one second. Where did that go? There we go. That was that one. Next one is a look at... Fuck you, pay me. A Glassdoor-like <laughs> service where creators can review brands they have worked with and share ad rates. This is from the New York Times. Fed up with imbalance between online influencers and brands, Lindsay Lee Lugren and Isha Mayra created a platform to change that with the very beautiful name of Fuck You, Pay Me. Uh, the app with the unprintable name that wants to give power to creators. Fed up, yeah. So that it's from the New York Times, so it's paywalled. Uh, I think I can find an unpaywalled version here real quick here. Uh, hey, Tyler, I can yeah. get you anything on the New York Times that you want, and I can just convert it to a PDF and send it to you whenever mm. you need it. I've, I've got another way. I've just been lazy about doing it. But uh, pay, fuck you, pay me functions as a glass door for influencers where the creators can leave reviews of brands and say how much they got paid, basically, and, and get other critical information for negotiating sponsored content for deals. The aim, to have creators be paid more equitably. That's really all you need to know. And Taylor Lorenz on Twitter says, there has been a huge move toward more pay transparency in the creator world. Fuck you, pay me is part of that. Founded by a content creator and former Facebook data scientist, they came out of a tech startup incubator program launched in beta last month. Fantastic. 
And an Australian court rules that AI can be considered an inventor on patent filings days after South Africa granted a patent in which an AI was designated as an inventor. IP lawyer says decision is bad because the last thing we need is robot patent trolls. Because they're right about that. that You can start creating thousands of patent applications based on GPT-3 and things like that and just starting patenting literally anything that we can't even begin to imagine. And um, yeah, that is the negative dystopian potential for that. You you get GPT-4 when it comes out, you tell it to suck in every patent that ever existed and then ask it to make new patents for things that have not yet been you know created and it can do that at scale meaning a million patent applications simultaneously so that's the power of digital um which is it, it, it it's exponential it's not linear so facebook to require all u.s on-campus staff does that mean at their hq is that what they are referring to on campus oh yes it does Facebook to require all U.S. on-campus staff to wear masks starting August 4th. That's tomorrow. Uh, Regardless of vaccination status, citing rising COVID cases and local regulations, Facebook will begin requiring all of its employees to wear masks when on campuses in the U.S., regardless of an employee's vaccination status. Tyler? Yes. The um, vaccination, pardon my throat right now, but the vaccination rate in San Francisco area is really skyrocketing rapidly and it's increasing in Southern California as well. So I think it's a pretty good preemptive move and precedent that's being started at this point. Good to hear. What do we think about companies requiring masks of employees regardless of vaccination status? Tyler? Yes? This is a very interesting one because after your long marathon, long marathon room last night, I popped into a social room and Professor Asif is in the audience as well. Mm The one thing, or he might be on stage, the one thing that's happening now, and I I tweeted it, I pinned it to my tweet last night late about the fact that they're stating that we should be be more concerned with Lambda because Lambda is the one that they're saying in Japan is going to be like the interloper because it's it's showing signs of vaccine resistance. So Lambda is the one that came from Latin America that's in Canada, was found in Canada. And, and the thing is, is that the U.S. could have both Lambda and Delta at the same time, which is why the U.S. is going to be in probably a big clusterfuck, because they could have both of them simultaneously this winter, this fall. However, the, the challenge here is that Lambda is the one that no one's talking about yeah. yet, but it is the one that is also resistant to these vaccines. So to Rhonda's point, it's great to see the uptick. But I also know here in Holland, they are not allowing travel of Europe. Like, if you're not an American citizen in Europe, you cannot travel into the U.S. They already blocked it. You cannot. You have to either be married to someone, you have to have residency. You cannot enter the U.S. from Europe, at least from Netherlands specifically, and probably the Schengen region. And I have a feeling that this is what's happening, is that the U.S. is probably being hopefully proactive to recognize that Lambda will come next. We're we're so... um segmented from county to county state to state we're like 50 different nations there's yeah, i know there's i'm from no, new york I'm no no york no city. but i'm saying right now i've never seen such di- division division as i've ever Got seen it. in this moment but the irony is the, the article i did not post do you know what group is being singled out for the 
um, rise in San Francisco currently of all groups? What group do you think it is? I'll, I'll pay any. I'll give anybody fifty dollars if they can guess this without looking. Go ahead, trivia, mu- uh, Jeopardy music, please. Jeopardy music. <laughs> Jeopardy music, please. Okay, uh, and and re- restate wait, the no, question. W- Hold on one second. Let me get the volume okay. up here. Okay. Without restate the looking. question with the Jeopardy music. Okay. <laughs> Which group? right now in San Francisco is responsible for the uptick in the virus cases. Please answer. You have 50 seconds for $50. Okay. Hmm. Who has the highest uptick? Which demographic or cohort has the highest uptick? Or nationality. I would say South Asian. I would say South Asian. Nationality. Nationality. Indian. Indian. Well, Hmm. Indian, South Asian. Or age. Hmm. It's children. Children. Oh, in 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 number of cases, in number of COVID cases, reported in COVID San Francisco cases? currently. Yeah, right in now. number of reported COVID cases, it's going to be youth. Millennials is the answer. Hmm. Yeah, so. the sad part about that is, in Holland, is having the same challenge as well. Is it's the age group between uh, twenty one and twenty eight. 29 that are just like fuck this shit i mean i'm just i mean they're the ones faking the qr codes which is kind of stupid but they just don't want to be told what to do and actually the prisons are getting really full in holland and we have a problem because of that because the people that they're arresting from these protests are all between the ages of like 18 and 28 so there's a another big uh, pandemic underneath that which is you know, if you and specifically Holland, speaking for Holland, they're very free with their teenagers and their kids. They, that's kind of their like they're allowed to do a lot. The, the parents don't necessarily discipline them so heavily here. So now what they're feeling is also a product of the lack of kind of how they discipline them growing up because they don't rein them in too much. And now they're they're kicking themselves a bit because now the prisons are overflowing with the age group of 18 to 28 and they actually were forced to reopen because so that, there was so much struggle with that age group. Millennials, I mean? What was that, Rhonda? The Zillennials, the people. Zillennials, that... sorry, that's right. It's the one before. It's the one younger than them, right? It's the one younger than them. China. Yeah. I have a related news. Okay. Uh, China, Wuhan, has started to lock down again and uh, to test all their residents as the COVID-19 returns. Yeah. They need to do Delta. It's, well... We yes, they're starting to lock down again. It's in nine different um, prefectures now. Yeah, Wuhan is the origin, right? Uh, of yeah. The, um, yeah. Yeah, so but the, the Delta origin and, was actually in Nanjing, at the airport hmm. with five air hostesses, and it's now spread to nine prefectures. Yep. So, including so like Wuhan. I said, I, I'm sure I'm sure the the people there will have trauma again. I'm, they just walk out of it. Okay. Anyway, wish them good luck. Yeah, the the issue is that Delta is a whole different animal, <clears throat> which it's going to be interesting to see how they combat it uh, in China, and that so it'll be a daily update for weeks to come. <clears throat> so, um, <clears throat> pardon me. There was a couple of crypto folks who were had their hands up that I think some of them might have been able to get up on stage. I'm not sure. Um, I um Russ, yeah, I'm. I'm yeah, I'm I'm well versed in uh, a lot of crypto. I've just been active since 2017. I know a lot about blockchain technology. I was part of the first SEC qualified token offering in the US, which is a block stack. So I know a lot about regulations and such. 
Um, so if you need any questions answered regarding anything, you know, to do with crypto, I can do my best. Um, you know, obviously there are people who know more than me, but I do know a lot. The, 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 are people, have you heard anyone talking about the infrastructure bill provisions related to crypto regulations, forcing all crypto nope. startups <laughs> in the U.S. to reveal the you, identities and addresses of anyone touching their service? You hit the nail or the hammer nail on the head, I guess, because like we're just a bunch of millennials just kicking it. So like we're <laughs> definitely not going to read unless, um, uh, something. So here's the thing. Yeah, unless they All print it inside our, the Doritos billions, bag. Yeah, no one's going to. Yeah, we're it, yeah. just going to keep our billions hidden from these assholes. That's all <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> You might be looking for real estate uh, in uh, interesting parts of the world in the near future. So yeah, I heard it was what was the one written down? Uh, what uh, Mongolia? Mongolia, yeah, yeah. Mongolia. <laughs> Start to set up that camp over there. Yeah, crypt- if I have to, I mean, I'll, I'll move the whole gang over there. Some, somebody, Tyler, somebody's going to cater a, to that audience, by the way. Yeah, go ahead. Tyler, that's a very interesting dynamic. And Russ, thank you for sharing that point of view because you said something very eloquently and paraphrasing, you're basically, I feel like there's this battle between young and old going on. And, and it's not, a, I'm not, not saying it in a negative way. I'm saying it in an observe, observation way. Because Tyler, to the point of like, the young are young. They could be quite agile and swiftly move to different places without much of a drama because they don't have kids, they don't have mortgages, they don't have anything, right? Yeah. So I, to Russ's point, yeah, he could uplift his whole freaking establishment and take it to where he wants to go, right? Yeah. The challenge here is that I feel like this is a bit of like Dungeons and Dragons and Game of Thrones. It's like we have the young, new evolution of innovation and wanting to move the ball of the society forward. As we've talked before, that we're, we need to start doing products for those that are 10, 12 years old right now. You know, but there's still those individuals in power and in positions that are not really considering them, that future. And they're still thinking that their way of being and their way of doing still is going to work in a society that's going to look very, very different even post-pandemic. We see this with social commerce. We see this with all the, the delivery apps. We see this with all of the, you know, the Etsy's, the Shopify's. You see that there's a whole paradigm shifting. And I feel like there's a, a, a group that's afraid to lose power and control. And as a result of that, they're scrambling to do it in the best way they know possible, which is regulations and, and red tape and laws and, and all of that stuff, right? But in the future, how will those look 20 years from now for that 12-year-old today when they're 32? What will that world look like then? And that's where I think I, I empathize with what Russ is saying because I think there's a, a disconnect with those generations. And I think that's what's creating all this crazy TikTok up, uptick on crypto and the whole Instagram and the social commerce that you speak of on a, on a frequent basis. But love to hear what uh, you think about that one. Um, yeah, it's where the whole younger folks are getting more and more geographically untethered. And it's just there's less constraints more than I mean the I, it's kind of weird. It, you I remember going to Tokyo the first time pre smartphone. I mean, you know the, God ninety ninety four ish ninety three ish, and it was you felt like you were going to a different planet. I felt like I was going to the goddamn moon because there was no way to connect home with my parents, you know, and keep them updated on what's going on. Like the internet, even cyber cafes barely existed back. Skype, I mean, barely existed. You did send postcards, right? Yeah, it was postcards. Yeah. And 
the idea now that you can FaceTime for practically free at any moment back home anywhere in the world, it just changes the whole game fundamentally. And it's, you know, the world just feels way, 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 way smaller. And there's just way, way less friction to being utterly mobile anywhere you want to be, anytime you want to be there. And, you know, the flights are a third of the cost as they were ever were. And Airbnb makes it dead simple to get an apartment in any city on the planet where that actually was incredible friction, especially in countries where you didn't speak the language, as I didn't when I first arrived in Japan. Even finding a place to stay was a remarkable challenge. And there was actual physical paper books called Lonely Planet where you had to go through there and, you know, look up the city and they had recommendations of 10 places in a city of 20 million people where you could find a place to stay for the night. And you had to go walk up there or maybe try and call them on the phone and they don't speak English. And you go, it's just, my God, now you can just bing, bing, Airbnb in Havana, Cuba. Boom, got an apartment before, you know, five minutes. I got a place to stay for a month, any city in the world. It's just, it's so incredibly different. Um, it's it's wild. So yeah, there, people okay, get, so- younger people can get up and go anywhere. And to that point, governments used to have <laughs> control and constraints based on their knowing that there's friction of you relocating. That friction is diminishing by the day. And so the the, the point is correct, which is uh, this these government historical constraints of your geography are just becoming less and less relevant. I know I get my air my mail is digitized my money is digitized everything's digitized what's and i've been i've been doing that since the 90s but um now i think everyone else is realizing it's there's the frictions that used to keep you in place of your paper mail that used to come and now you have to figure out a way to receive it and check it that's gone all that shit's gone it's super interesting you said this because one of my teachers which i've shared before is um belarus but he's grown up in sweden and he has been saying this like yeah, I've been in this space for a pretty long time, but my point is, is I've been following him and he, when he was programming at nine years old, so he's a bit of a prodigy when it comes to gaming and coding. And he said it himself in some of his live streams, like about four or five years ago, he was like, look, by the time we get to where we're going, people are going to start to have realize they're going to have a choice where they want to live. And that's going to make other countries realize that they could actually attract people based on how they navigate what they offer them, right? Well, on their and values. Said, exactly. <clears throat> You're no longer forced said, yeah. to live in the country Correct. if you don't agree with their values. And Correct. And that's what he was talking about. I actually got, I got into a huge, I didn't mean it to be a huge debate uh, or a heated point. And uh, many, Cheryl was with me in the room and we were, there was somebody who's clearly doesn't like America living in America. I'm like, hey, you know, there's a lot of other countries out there with a lot of different views. And if you don't like America, you don't have to. I'm telling you as somebody who left a decade ago, partially on the values point, you know, I have different values and I move around based on, you know, jurisdictions of the world that fit are more in line with my values. And if I found a place where I didn't feel like my values were in sync with that country, I would move again. I'm in Thailand today. My values might change. Their values might change. And if either of those happen to a degree where I no longer feel comfortable, I'm going to up and move to somewhere where I do feel more comfortable. But I no longer. So, but, so my point so is Tyler, the, got... the, the person I said that to as an American was like, how dare you? You're telling me love it or leave it. And uh, you remember, Cheryl? You need a very yeah. patriotic soundbite. You know that you need a very patriotic sound sound thread. <laughs> 
Because but, but one one thing regards to this IRS thing, I'm mean, asking the IRS thing, right? Uh, I, I I'm sure you guys know that American citizen, wherever you go, you have to abide to that, right? Have a right to what? You have to abide to the we laws have to pay in US. Taxes. No, you have yeah. to pay taxes. Is the only thing. You have yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I've got four more oh, countries that don't have extradition with the US. There you, you go. <laughs> go ahead, Vinay. Where are we moving to? Russ, take notes. Russ, Russ, take notes. <laughs> Russ, take notes. You've got Russia. No, 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 no. You Russia. Moldova. Yep, Moldova's fantastic. Go ahead. Yeah, the Ooh, Chad. Moldova's amazing. Uh-huh. Chad and uh-huh. South Sudan. Yep. It looks like we're moving Moldova. to Moldova. There we go. Okay, I didn't know. <laughs> you you guys, you could all go to Switzerland. It's a financial crime. It's, 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 Switzerland's probably the nicest. You're sure about the? They don't extradite for financial issues. It's. I'm pretty sure. Isn't isn't that? Where in Switzerland? No, no. So I think so, financial they don't. I'm, I'm going to check for you. I'll let you know. Financial crime. So I checked. I, I checked. Switzerland has been very, very very interesting because in the past 10 years, because living in Amsterdam, I do freelance work all over Europe. And Switzerland is a very interesting one because Switzerland has actually been, they've been very diplomatically getting rid of the Americans from Switzerland. It's really messed up to say, but it's the truth. What they're doing is, is they're just making it much, much harder for Americans to even try to work or set foot anything in there. And that's, I think, in my humble opinion, how they're managing to keep themselves still neutral. Okay, because so most of the time, it's got the regulations it. got, of the U.S. We got the point. Vinay, what's your point? Yeah, so I checked on Switzerland. They have a full extradition treaty with the U.S. And specifically to financial crimes, the U.S. government has to prove that that particular crime has caused material uh, damage in the U.S. So if it's just like an income tax avoidance, Switzerland will not extradite. But if it's caused like a Ponzi scheme and caused losses, mm. then it is extraditable. Ah, so if you're a crypto startup, they might get you. But if you're an individual using a crypto, they might not. Not okay. if you live I'm in a Zug. startup. So, so no, Moldova, by the way, Russ, I've been to Moldova just now, the capital. It, holy cow, is that the cheapest city in the world to live? One, well, absolutely one of the cheapest cities in the world Can to live. I- can I interject? Yeah. I do actually side with the guy who was pissed off. Like, who? Uh, can we curse in here? I'll just refrain. Yeah. Um, but like being angry about leaving because America's known for being a melting pot and fighting for freedom. So, mm-hmm. I mean, come on. Like, I think we'll fight first. And if we can't win, then we'll leave. But we're still going to fight first. Right. That was the person's point, uh, essentially. You just framed it very eloquently, which is. No, I don't agree with what's going on here, and and we're going to fight. And you know, I said, yeah, you 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 can do that. And uh, then you know, rather than start burning down, you know, uh, federal buildings and tearing down statues, it, it, you might decide, you know, it might, might be a better use of your lifetime to uh, you know find a little geography that's more copacetic with your values. I mean, I mean, if we want people to pay, though, like the people who put us in the, the suffering, you know, we want to stick around. Oh, if you're already invested. Yeah, you're in a bad relationship. You've already got five years in that relationship. You don't just want to end that thing. I got you. No, I want to watch them suffer. Right. Uh, it's an, You're in a toxic relationship with your own country. There you go. <laughs> right. It's like an abusive girlfriend that I Are just you keep happy going back to. You're, co- you're codependent. Oh, Are you happy very in a toxic happy. relationship? Yeah. Uh, let's, let's hear about I'm it. I want to hear about, I wanna hear about right. the grievances. Like, I, I, I'm ex- this is interesting. Well, apparently, uh, his, his, gov- his government partner is looking into his phone. 
when he's sleeping. <laughs> it has to do with Indian encryption and trying to get rid of that. And, and the way they try to get rid of it, it's like layering it under like child sex trafficking and saying they're protecting you. In actuality, they're just trying to remove your right to be a human by removing your ability to have any sort of privacy. Okay, next big headline. It's a great point. And, and I appreciate the lighthearted nature of this, but a rather serious point. The next big headline is... Um, right. well, Carl, I thought you, I, I'm surprised you haven't covered the Tencent. Uh, we'll get there. Today. It's in here. I got it. Oh, yeah, it's, it's there. Coming. Okay. Yeah. Also, we covered the Australian court. We covered Facebook masks. The next one's from Bloomberg. And Bloomberg's jumping in a week late. Uh, and we've been covering this as it was cracking down in real time. I did ping in David Chang to give the expert opinion on this, but Bloomberg jumping in with the hot headline that Xi Jinping's capitalist smackdown sparks a $1 trillion reckoning. That's true. However, the kind of buy headline is an in-depth look at the political motivations behind China's tech crackdown as Xi pursues progressive authoritarianism at the expense of international capital. Xi Jinping smiled and hinted at a policy bombshell that would soon royal stock markets from Shanghai to New York. And I, yeah, I don't blame them for thinking that. That was my first impression too, actually, was, oh, they're just, it's a power grab of why they're cracking down on all these tech companies. And there is an element of that, uh, apparently. However, there's, we've come to realize talking with very intelligent friends of ours on the ground, Chinese folks in Beijing who are geeks themselves, who are incredibly bright and incredibly connected, and their take on what's happening is more akin. He referenced a metaphorical of Caesar, who is more a, a champion of the people than the money and the banks in their own in their own empire. And that the one of the absolute driving motivators is addressing the birth rate, believe it or not. And that's something I've not seen a single of these articles like Bloomberg. And there were others yesterday. Every, we've seen one every day for the past week of their parroting similar points of this is an authoritarian uh, power grab at, at the expense of international capital. And it's the declining birth rate factor holds up to scrutiny. And the inside of China, and I've done my own further investigation into this, just to, I don't doubt David Cheng for two seconds. But I just wanted to see for my own self and uh, kind of get an actual smell of what people in mainland China are saying about this tech crackdown on the ed tech companies, which was tens of billions of dollars estimated at $100 billion worth of value that was lost in privatizing, um, not private, but yeah, um, removing public funding of ed, the ed tech companies, of which there are many. And one individual alone lost, a single individual lost $15 billion that they had invested into one ed tech company, a Chinese individual who used to be a school teacher, believe it or not, ironically. So um, the, the sentiment on the ground in mainland China is they're wildly applauding Xi Jinping cracking down on the ed tech companies because to them, that is one of the uh, expenses in their life is educating their children and the money is going to these ed tech companies. So if you can lower the cost of the education of your children, uh, Chinese people absolutely uh, applaud that. There's few things you could do to get Chinese parents more happy and excited than lowering the cost of educating children. And that's what they've done. 
And so the U.S. is fundamentally not understanding that. They're not understanding that Chinese parents are wildly appreciative, wildly enthusiastic. It's Christmas come early in July uh, in reducing one of the biggest costs of life in China, which is the education of their child. And so that was done to increase the declining birth rate. And about six weeks ago, China did for the first time in three years, they, they avoided it for two years and they couldn't avoid it for three, announced the birth rate data. And the it was perhaps not surprisingly, um, shockingly, uh, a kind of a, a wild announcement that the birth rate is declining faster than anyone expected. The average age is older than the U.S. and it's and rapidly increasing. And that's an existential problem to the state of the CCP. It's an existential threat to the government. If something's going to dethrone the CCP, it's this declining birth rate. If that left unabated, they have to address it. They have to fix it. Other countries have the same problem. They don't feel the existential threat of fixing it because they're democracies. They get voted out in four years anyways. Doesn't matter. There's very few things that could now challenge the CCP in mainland China. And... A de this declining birth rate of an economy collapsing, and that's what happens if you don't, if you leave a declining birth rate uh, economically un unfettered. So they're addressing it, they're fixing it, and one of the things that they and they're fixing it with a, a fury and uh, with no with an urgency. And one of the things to do is what's stopping people from having, having children? Oh, the cost of having children. Oh, the cost of educating children. Fixed. What's next? The cost of housing. And now they are. And here's how, here's the evidence. Here's the proof that I know I'm correct. Because if my premise is correct, that they did this to address the birth rate, as I'm claiming, then we could then say, ah, if this is correct, that they cracked down on these ed tech companies, not for the authoritarian uh, purposes, as Bloomberg says in their headlines, as a political motivation of uh, progressive authoritarianism, that in fact, it's just to fix the declining birth rate. Then if it is about fixing the declining birth rate, then they would also fix the next likely thing that is the major expense of having more children, which is housing. And guess what? They're now cracking down on the fucking housing. Oh, what do you fucking know? Did you short anything, Tyler? Yes. So we now have the actual fucking proof that they're doing this to fix the birth rate because they're now consistently going after the specific areas that are the frictions to having children, which is the cost of education and now the cost of housing. So we even predicted add, what their next move would be and we were correct. And we can do that jobs. because we know what their fucking motive is. It's fixing the fucking birth rate. It's nothing. It's not the key purpose of this is perfectly understandable. And we can even predict what their next move is going to be. Yes. Because we jobs. understand what's actually fucking happening. Bloomberg, pull your fucking head out of your ass. Do a little homework. Call somebody in Beijing and say, what's going on over there? Why are they doing this? The, the, there's not one mention of the word birth rate in this article or in the TechCrunch article that was written 48 hours ago. And the TechCrunch hey, article Tyler. also made the same assessment that, by the way, count me guilty as charged. My first assumption, I'll even say Cal's first assumption was, ah, this seems like on the face of it, an authoritarian power grab.
That's what it seems like on the surface. If you if you don't have if you don't aren't on the ground, if you don't have friends on the ground actually telling you what's actually going on. By the way, being an American who lives in Asia and works in Europe for a decade more, more than a decade now, I can tell you Europeans also often have a fundamental misunderstandings of the motives of Trump, for example, and American politics generally. They think they know what's going on, but unless you've actually lived there, you don't really know why Lindsey Graham is doing some of the whack ass shit that he's doing. Unless you actually know the complicated nature of the relationships between the blue states and the red states. So that's what makes this room very that's good. That's what makes tech news around the world so fucking around. amazing. Right. And that's why we can look at Bloomberg <laughs> and TechCrunch and be like, yes, come on, guys. Them. It's 2021. Pick up the phone, call somebody on the ground. And well, in all fairness, China has removed all the Western journalists out of China. So they don't they no longer have friends on the ground there. Their friends are acro- right across the border in Hong Kong, which, by the way, is a 15 minute train ride from Shenzhen. So you're barely outside of mainland now. But in in fairness, you don't have journalists on the ground to call. But you probably know somebody. They've got a billion and a half people. You must know somebody over there that you can call. So, Tyler. Yeah. Uh, so, so you know, absolutely agree with you 100%. And uh, to the point of all of these journalists not looking at the data, and I think I mentioned this, uh, the 14th five-year plan by the Chinese government came in April, and the tra- English translation came in May, and they had actually telegraphed every single one of these moves, because they had actually said it. And I've been reading that document. Uh, there's a couple of other things that kind of talks about that... Um, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, it, uh, do, building a strong domestic consumer market is central to the 14th plan. Uh, delinking from global financial uh, investments is another. So they couldn't care less if the VCs lose money because it's, it's clearly laid out in that 14th five-year plan. Uh, I, I'll tweet a link to it, guys, but it's an I, amazing I'll, document. I'll challenge you a little bit. I think they do care. It's just a relative to fixing the, the kindling birth rate relative to the bigger long-term picture right they're thinking as a tradition as everyone knows they do they're thinking very long term they're thinking very big picture and they're addressing the very huge existential threat similar to climate change huge existential threat and when when we were in this room yesterday and we said oh there's a there's solutions like carpet bombing bamboo seeds you know in the bamboo belt and great and the first objection is ah you're gonna you're gonna have bamboo and in foreign uh soils that are not uh, accustomed to that species of bamboo well, is is that not a price we're willing to pay to fix climate change well we, we hey good news everybody we fix climate change uh human existence gets to continue bad news though uh there's bamboo happening in places it didn't used to happen uh, uh, is, uh, oh oh my goodness oh my god why oh my god what have we done <laughs> why yeah, did but, we but, think but but, but... <laughs> But if the humans' uh, habits don't change, you still have to look for the next solution after the next solution after the next solution. It will still come it's, back. It's Tyler. It's it's. I think it's the it's our idealist seeking, you know, decision making processes. That's why we can't make our minds up about masks or vaccines because we need every answer to be so absolute before we even make the 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 decision. Well, no, but we've also I, here's my take: is we've become prone to verbosity and not prone to action there's a notable lack of people, exactly of people that are now prone to action and we're taught we talk shit and we don't do shit 
and there's the doers. By the way, we had this huge headline yesterday, or last, not even yet, last time we met, 12 hours ago, about gorillas, the um, delivery company. I believe they're based out of Berlin. And they are looking to grow. Uh, they're expecting to have, um, they have two, they, they launched uh, within the past year. They're growing faster than nearly any company in the history of companies. And the journalist wrote the article about, um, you know, uh, this company is growing so fast, it's a problem. And will it be around in here? And, you know, uh, there's we found out of the 2000 employees, we found nine disgruntled employees who were all paid uh, minimum wage. And um, they they say negative things. And this is a journalist working at a dying publication who can't get five cents of fund fundraising from any investor on the planet. And yet this gorillas company is looking to raise two billion dollars and is likely to have a $20 billion valuation after the first year of business. And now this journalist who works at, a, at an actual dying company is critiquing one of the fastest growing companies of all time on the premise of it might not be around. No, what might not be around is your fucking tech blog. Mm. And it's all of this analysis and talking and gorillas doing gorillas building fast, fast, fast. 10 minute delivery is the company. 10 minute delivery. You know how difficult that is? And they're doing it. And the customers love it. In fact, they're freaking out about it. And they've inspired competitors. And VCs are investing in their competitors. That's when you know you've got something good. When you're when you're doing when you really on to something, you will have competitors. And and your competitors will get fundraising and you'll get fundraising. That means you've got something. And that means you're doing shit. You're not talking shit. And this journalist is just talking shit and is going to talk shit into the grave. She's going to talk shit and in, in not do the necessary steps of leaving the tech publication, going over to Substack or her own platform, creating an email list and building her own audience and building her, you know, why? Oh, my God. Don't get me started with this. And what's wrong with people these days? Anyway. OK, next headline. Ah, uh, London based Palta, which develops health and wellness apps, raises 100 million. What a shock. Another health tech company raising money from Tiger Global. Who could have guessed the uh, health tech's exploding? If you're doing a decent health tech company in 2021, you will get funding. Uh, the next headline is YouTube trials premium light tier for seven euros per month, about eight dollars a month in Europe, giving viewers ad free viewing on the web, iOS, Android, smart TVs and game consoles currently being piloted in parts of Europe, namely Scandinavia. It's specifically the Nordics and Benelux. And Google is piloting a more affordable premium subscription. The only difference is, yeah, you remove the ads, but unlike the real premium, which I happen to have and I love, is you don't get YouTube music. You don't get the ability to play videos in the background. Like when you're on Twitter, the YouTube video plays in the background, which is fantastic. Or you can turn your phone screen off and put it in your pocket and listen to it like a podcast. I love that. So, um, But you get to skip all the ads for about $8 a month. Next big headline. Latin America now has at least 23 unicorns. There we go. Which collectively has raised $15 billion with 15 raising VCs this year. 40% of all VC funding in 2020 went into fintech. There you go. As it does, because that's the first layer of the plumbing of 
the future city of your Silicon Valley of Latin America is you, you don't start building with the e-commerce. You start with the finance layer that enables the e-commerce. Got it? It's very, it's rather simple. So when you go into emerging markets, you want to invest in the fintech as Mabwana is doing in Africa. It's just, it's just the way it is. So after the fintech layer is in place, you can start adding on all the other products and services that are, that are enabled by the fintech layer. So the next big headline is Novakid, an app that offers online English language classes to kids age four to 12, raises $35 million by Owl Ventures. And again, it's an ed tech. It's English lang- language app. Fantastic. Novakid. God knows that's a what a beautiful project to be doing at this moment. Duolingo is doing the same, of course, but they're doing lots of other languages as well. But I, I certainly applaud anyone who's doing English English language learning apps. And um, I think it's still a huge, tremendous opportunity because there is not yet a clear, absolute market winner for um, uh, an English language app for the planet, essentially. But of course, you have to have the native language that goes into English. Anyway, the next big article is from TechCrunch, Finite State, a supply chain security startup. Uh, as we know, supply chains have been uh, disrupted as of late. So a supply chain security startup that helps uncover security flaws lands $30 million. What a surprise. Uh, on the heels in the wake of all of these uh, supply chain um, vulnerabilities that are being attacked by ransomwares, not a surprise that a security startup's raising money. So you can add security startups, ed tech startups, pretty much foolproof. There's more demand than supply. There's more customers than there are startups like by a thousand ten thousand to one so if you make a decent secu- uh, 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 cyber security company or ed tech company you will get funding or a fintech in the developing world this is not complicated stuff folks um nikia an indian e-commerce startup for beauty products filed for an ipo and seeks to raise 70 million at a valuation of 4 billion there you go. India has passed the fintech layer. They're now doing the commerce layer. And now you have an e-commerce company IPOing. You see, the process is quite simple. That's where India's at in their development. Microsoft Desktop as a Service Windows 365 Cloud PC is generally available and costs between $20 and $162 per month per user based on cores, RAM, and storage. Big whoop. Pro-Trump social network getter is awash with Islamic State propaganda, including graphic videos of beheadings and memes of militant executing Trump himself. They're creating deep fakes of uh, beheading Trump on the pro-Trump social network. Good times. I bet they didn't see this one coming when they thought, you know, free speech, don't cancel us. We're against canceling, no canceling. How dare you uh, cancel something I say? You can't stop people from saying stuff they don't want to say. Oh, shit. Here comes ISIS with deep fakes of beheading our dear leader. You can't do that. Let's cancel them. <laughs> or are they going to leave it uh, and stay true to their values of not canceling? To be continued. Uh, let's see how Getter responds now that they've created a their utopia of uncensorship. And then they find out what kind of Pandora's box of anarchy they're really opening. Um, and now they're getting a real taste of uh, unfettered free speech of deep fakes of their dear leader being beheaded. And let's see how they respond. When uh, are, they, are they going to applaud the, the, the free speech expressions of ISIS on their, on their platform? To be determined. Uh, let's see with some of the quotes here. Just a few weeks after launching pro-Trump social media network, Getter is full of pro-ISIS terrorist propaganda. So it's essentially a platform for terrorists, both domestic and international. <laughs> oh, that's a harsh tweet. 
Um, Eric Geller says, Getter did not respond to repeated requests for comment about jihadi material being shared on its network. I can't wait for that response, by the way, from Jason Miller, who's the creator of the app. This happens to every new social platform that says it won't moderate content. It's like opening a store for bragging that you won't hire security. Yep. ISIS has been ISIS has been very quick to exploit Getter, according to Politico, another win for unmoderated online communities. Next headline, South Korean game developer Netmarble says it will acquire Hong Kong-based Spinex games, which develop social casino games for $2.19 billion. Current, oh, here it is. Current and former employees at German grocery delivery startup Gorillas describe arbitrary firings and exploitation of riders and warehouse workers. So the, the real interesting point in this whole article is the last paragraph where it says it concedes. Um, it's, it's making the point that they have they found they spoke to nine disgruntled former employees who were minimum wage paid. So perhaps not a surprise they were disgruntled. And um, the company, in, even in Germany, you have a probationary period when you hire somebody to decide if you're going to employ them. And during that probationary period, you can fire them at will for no reason, with no warning. It's a probation. It's a, like a three-week testing period or what have you to see if they're a fit for your company and, or your needs for them. And if you're doing 10-minute delivery, let's just think for a second. Who, without making any real big judgments here, um, would would Willie, Willie Schroll, Willie, I, I imagine you're around 50 years old, right? Just assume. Yeah, 50 plus, yes. There you go. So Willie, I'm imagining you're not going to apply to work at a 10-minute delivery company to, to deliver things around Berlin in less than 10 minutes. Only as an extreme experience. <laughs> yes, unless you, as a replacement for a gym, perhaps, and maybe you'd be willing to do it for free just for the, uh, the cardiovascular workout that it would require. Uh, Ken, I imagine you're not going to apply for this either. And um, Froz, I, 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 I'm just going to take a wild stab and think you're not interested in the 10-minute delivery um, startup. This is obviously physically intensive work. And so the idea that uh, some people are going to apply who shouldn't be applying. And some of those people are going to be fired during their probationary period because they're not able to do what most people who apply are going to physically need to do because they they're, they're obviously have metrics that they expect you to be able to deliver in 10 minutes. And if you're not able to deliver in 10 minutes, they're probably going to fire you. And you might not have, have for, some, for some people, delivering 10 minutes physically is doable. For other people, it's not. This is like the new bike messenger job. Right. But most people didn't apply for bike messenger jobs because they realized they suck at riding bikes. But in this case, I think the company needs to do, I think I figured out their problem. Hey, Gorillas, Gorillas founder, CEO, I have a message for you. Uh, definitely promote yourself as being physically demanding work and physically challenging and start with a test of uh, an actual obstacle course at the beginning of the process, before you ever yeah, send anybody exactly. out on I've a- I've got the headline. Yeah. I've got the headline. Go ahead, Dina. Do you like extreme sports? Yes. You're going to love this job. Yes, there it is. <laughs> Tina from the- They're, they're, they're retail athletes. Yes. So um, if you 
do a, have a freaking obstacle course. That would be fantastic PR, by the way. This company is so demanding. They have an actual boot camp obstacle course to see if you're fit to be an employee. And I'll, you know why I think this is a good idea? Because I had a startup uh, where I did, a, I, I should say it's Jason's startup, really. He founded it. And we had to hire 200 people nearly immediately. We raised $20 million from Sequoia and Elon Musk and Mark Cuban and everybody else. And we had to hire a whole bunch of people really quickly. And we were one of these fast growth tech startups, very demanding. And uh, like an Olympic athlete level of dedication required and focus and determination and grit. And you're going to have emotional breakdowns. It's just, it's that demanding. As Uber, I had a lot of friends who worked at Uber. Uber was the same way. You get into these incredibly rocket ship companies, there's tears, right? There's a lot of breakdowns, emotional breakdowns. You're, you know, you don't have time to eat dinner with your family or you break, or you're breaking. I have to break up with your partner, your loved ones that you don't have time to have a relationship outside of work when you're working at a startup like this. And I was incredibly upfront about this in recruiting people. And I did something truly remarkable that I'm going to share my, one of my very best tips with everybody listening for the next two minutes here, which is when, when people would apply, I would tell them, do you have nothing else going on in your life at all? No relate, you know, have nothing else, no other priorities in your life because this job I will not. I have a lot of best friends who are looking for work right now, and I would never, ever let them work here because it's way too demanding. Even though they need to work, I will not hire them here. This job is so intensely demanding that you will cry, guaranteed, within the first week. Now, why would anybody be so insane to even consider uh, the rest of this conversation to consider working here? Because if you feel that you have not lived up to your full potential as a human being and you need somebody like an Olympic coach to kick your ass to jump in the pool at 4 a.m. even though you really don't want to and you need somebody to beat the shit out of you to work 10 times harder than you ever have before to push you to be the better person that you know you can be. If that's where you are at in your phase in your life, I don't know. Only you know. I can't begin to make that judgment. I'm not even going to try. But we will just uh, be the, you know, professional, um, you know, uh, hard, 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 hard hitting uh, drill sergeant. If that's what you need at this moment in your life, because you feel like you are not living up to your full potential, this might be a good fit for you. But it will be the hardest work you will ever do in your entire life. You will cry regularly. You will think, what the hell did I just get myself into? And if you think I'm exaggerating, hold that thought. Hey, Jeremy. Come over here for a second. Thanks. <laughs> hey, Jeremy. Uh, what did I, how long have you been here? Two months. What did I tell you when you applied here? You told me it'd be the hardest work I ever did in my life and I would cry every week and I would, you know, lose uh, friends and loved ones because I don't have enough time to have meals together with them. Jeremy, was I exaggerating? No, sir, you were not. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, Tyler, and then, I just well, hold on. And then I would call. tell them, listen, go home, think about it. If you're interested, DM me tomorrow and let me know because only you know. I, I don't know. I don't know if you're in that phase in your life. For most people, they're not in that phase in their life where they want that drill sergeant like uh, grilling. Some people are in that phase in their life where they you know what? That's what I need in my life right now. This is someone to just really be a boot camp drill sergeant and push, push, Tyler. push me beyond my limits. Now, here, here's my point is. What percent of people do you think messaged me the next day to say, I want this? 
Not a lot. 90%. So. Very interesting, Tyler. The point is, is when they came in, they now have the expectation. The expectation is properly set. Got it. And they understand fully what they're getting into. And they understand the. it's not that we're just mean and we're, you know, whatever. It, there's a reason for everything. And they now transparently understand, uh, have a much better grasp of what's going on on kind of on, 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 in a 360 perspective. So you don't have employee when when employees do burn out and they do and some do burn out after one or two or three or four or five weeks. They don't go to the press and say, ah, oh, uh, this company's so mean. Well, no, we told you we're mean when you joined. We told you we're going to, you know, kick your ass. That's what you signed up for. You said you wanted that. My point to gorillas is do something similar. Make an actual obstacle court boot camp with a drill sergeant with a whistle saying, is that all you got? You're not fit for this company. Get out of here, you loser. And do that in front of, do, have a, make, make an obstacle course in front of your HQ, buy a little piece of land next to your office, build an actual office, obstacle course, and make it a big, game show and find out who's fit to work there yeah go ahead tyler this is really fascinating that you bring this up because i'm a bikram teacher and i get this all the time bikram's like the crossfit of yoga it's like you know we don't mess around when it comes to results but we we demonstrate that in the way we teach and the way we were trained in in training with about 300 other people we were actually pushed to the limits which kind of would scare people we were 315 people in Hawaii in a room at the Ilikai, and we were being trained two hours, uh, two times a day, two hours at 55 to 65 degrees Celsius with a humidity of 66, 67% because we were going to be hot, yoga, hot Bikram yoga teachers. And in order to prove that we weren't going to die, we had to be put through the, the test of how much we could handle. And it's really wild because people from an outside, oh my God, that's kind of fucking crazy. Are you nuts? But the reality is, is that that gives me the confidence now to make sure that I can support my students and my clients and my members through their journey. And that's why athletes come because they see the value of the class. But then when you, you, you um, pansy it or you, you make it watered down like the hot flow that you see in a lot of the places now, people get triggered when they start getting an experience of a stronger class because they're like, oh shit, this isn't hot yoga. And I'm like, dude, man, the original hot yoga is Bikram. That's part of the process. That was part of the cathartic experience. If you didn't like what you saw in the mirror, then change it. If not, shut up, get your work done and leave. You have a choice. It was not about saying like, hey, you want to be in here and I've got to pacify you. No, you come in here, you like it. Great. You don't like it. There's plenty of other yoga to go to. You don't have to come to us. And people used to get really upset with us. And I'm like, why get upset when we're just laying the expectation down? Okay. But here, here's the point though. So and you could choose. D, yeah. It's all about expectation. This DW is from Germany and they just wrote the similar article saying gorillas delivery riders protest unfavorable working conditions. The Berlin-based grocery delivery startup, which launched its service during the pandemic. 10-minute delivery during the pandemic. Gee, you think they got people going to use the service? You know, people locked in their houses, 10-minute delivery? Gee, I think they might have a good product market fit. I think there's people at home that might want some 10-minute delivery when they're locked in their homes. So the Berlin-based grocery delivery startup, which launched its service during the pandemic, is expanding rapidly. Yeah, no shit. But workers say the billion-dollar company should fix local problems first. And my point is, very simply, this essentially could all be avoided if you very 
uh, uh, went overboard in explaining how challenging the job is. If you give any impression, oh, yeah, it's nice. It's a nice job. You're going to love this job. It's great. You just get on a bike and you go over there and it's $10 an hour. You're fucked. You're, you're screwed. It's not that. Don't position it that way. Position it as we are an elite team of absolute killers. Are you qualified to join our team? I don't think you are. You look a little heavy. You look a little slow. You're breathing a little heavy. Maybe come back in three months from now after, um, you know. But I tell you what, you want to lose 20 pounds? Hey, you can cancel your gym membership and get paid to bust your ass. Now you've set the expectation. Now you avoid headlines like this. So anyway, it's it's an end of rant. It's just an important message for startups. But Tyler, you would yeah. also get the next, you would get the next rant, not in a, and I'm not going to go through it, but what you'd get is the flip side of that, Tyler, right? Because you'd get, no one's ever happy. We're not pizza. The, you know, the, everyone expects everything to be really cushy, cushy, but the reality is we're not pizza. We're not ice cream, but you'd get the flip side of it where people would then be having that sort of elite sort of uh, recruitment process that, you know, there'd be other, you know, there'd be the other set of people that would be like, oh my God, how could you treat people like that? Oh my God. How could you talk to them like that? I think that's bullying. I'll oh tell you my how you God, do it. Because you, I'm in Europe and that's wearing, what happens. They're wearing uniforms, these gorilla folks, right? They have a, yeah, co- Tyler, they Tyler, have a colored shirt. They have a colored bag. Do, do the colors in military uh, camouflage to highlight the whole aesthetic that this is boot camp. Tyler, the brand name, the brand name. Who, who would go to gorillas not understanding uh, what gorillas means? And you are so experienced in startup business, so you had uh, hour-long discussions about brand names, right? Yeah. You could write books about it, probably, just about this issue, uh, branding of a startup. And if I have the title gorillas, I think, uh, and all the... The visuals I find, and we have now uh, elections in September in Germany, and I saw that uh, the minister for uh, labor uh, was visiting uh, even uh, gorillas. I just saw it in the news magazine Spiegel in Germany that uh, it's uh, they're talking about the clash of cultures. Yeah, so it's 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 just not a new thing. It's just platform economy and gig economy meeting. Uh, the German here in this way, a kind of German mentality and system. Thank you. Um, that, Tyler, I, I just want to be fair. Uh, I just want to highlight two points I read briefly. Okay, so lack of proper gear, that's one. Uh, lack of what? Check. Proper gear, proper gear. Uh-huh. I guess a helmet and the equipment. Uh, and uh, paycheck trouble, they have been owing uh, salary. And uh, the last one, of course, is what you say uh, about the uh, back back-breaking job. Yeah. Well, they, it's because they were not clearly, uh, it wasn't clearly made the, 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 how difficult physically the work is and people and, get fired uh, and then they get angry that got fired because they feel like, I, uh, you know, yeah. I, 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 I guess it's also, they, they grow very fast, which is a good thing, but uh, they probably need a better manager to manage it. Well. Yeah. They just need to re uh, kind of brand their recruitment process that it's phys- very physically demanding and embrace that. And, highlight the benefits of that you can cancel your gym membership you will get in the best physical shape of your life you will lose weight you will gain muscle doing this job if that's not what you're in for get the hell out of here avoid this place like the plague i don't think you have what it takes you look too heavy we're not my employee so i can i'm just telling you that person to person 
<laughs> I wonder how that would fly. But here's the weird thing. They are, uh, you just said they're in Deer Spiegel, right? Um, well, Willie? Excuse me again? They're in the biggest German publication, Der Spiegel, right? Yeah, it, it's a, a kind of politicum for some weeks now. Right. And it's executing the old uh, topics uh, between uh, the left social democrats and, yeah, let's say right. the new economy. Yeah, here's my and point. So it's, it's you you got off track. I, I, that's, I don't need that context. My point is they're in DW, one of the biggest outlets. They're in Der Spiegel. They're probably getting all kinds of press right now. Genius. Genius, 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 genius. How do I know that it's genius that they're getting all this press? I can guarantee you their downloads of their apps are going berserk as a result of these articles of their former employees complaining that they were treated too roughly. Because the users are like, what's this? 10-minute delivery? Holy shit, that's all I needed. No downloading the app. I don't give a shit. Some former employee making minimum wage thought the job was too hard. All I know is there's a 10-minute delivery system called Gorillas in my neighborhood. I didn't know that. Fantastic. I'm downloading that. You know how I know this? Because Uber did the exact same thing in every city they went to. They go into a city. What do you know? As soon as they set up shop, no one knows they're in the city. They got to let people know Uber's live in your city. Next thing you know, there's a bit of a protest going on. Drivers aren't happy. Blah, 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 blah. Press everywhere. Sit, Uber downloads explode in that city. Yeah, good or bad news is still good marketing. 500 markets later, IPO. Who was the articles? A net, the, the, it was the best. It was critical to Uber's success. These critical articles about how the disgruntled drivers. And Gorilla's playing the same playbook. So anyway, next article. The next biggest article at the moment is that tire maker Bridgestone acquires a Zuga San Jose-based company that offers vehicle fleet tracking. There you go. Smart. Including GPS and dual-facing dash cam setups. Smart. There's a traditional dinosaur that has no data acquiring a data tech startup. Smart. Because that will eventually become bigger than you. And you know, Kodak should have bought Instagram and could have saved their ass. And Instagram's far bigger than Kodak ever was. And they they could have been the first to buy it. So here you go. A a tire company, although tire companies aren't going to go out of business, but uh, they're not a data company. And now they're acquiring a San Jose fleet vehicle tracking uh, company based on GPS data and cameras and all that. Smart investigation in the last five years six u.s academic institutes received tens of millions of pounds in funding from google facebook amazon and microsoft this is a wild story about how the the big tech companies are directly funding the research institutions that the paul the politics engage with in determining their policies essentially and now some of the people at those institutions are under uh, as anonymous sources are questioning, uh, maybe we've got a little conflict of interest here. That uh, you know, Facebook gave us fifteen million dollars, Google gave us twenty million dollars over the last five years. To, that might influence the kind of reports that we generate that the politicians look at. Maybe, kinda, yeah. That, that's what the article is about. It's a fantastic article. So I will tweet that out for those who want to deep dive on it. But that was a nice little summary. And the next big article is. Right here, it's uh, following the UK's CMA, 
European Commission is launching an investigation into Facebook's acquisition of a startup called Customer with a K with a deadline of December 22nd for a ruling. And Europe will probe Facebook's purchase of Customer and the European Commission itself has put out a statement uh, that says Commission opens in-depth investigation into proposed acquisition of Customer by Facebook. It'll be interesting to see how they rule because Customer really has very little to do with Facebook's traditional businesses. So it's it doesn't add to their monopoly position or anything like that on the face of it. Uh, so whether or not the EU, it'll be interesting. What if the EU says you can't do it and America says you can? Uh, then what happens? And then they do, they're an American company and they acquire another American company. What the hell does the EU have to do with that? Next article from Politico, the FTC, Federal Trade Commission, which oversees the stock markets and whatnot, lead economics expert in an antitrust case against Facebook. Carl Shapiro has parted ways with the agency as it prepares to refile its case, which was essentially they lost their initial antitrust case. Again, the FTC tried to do an antitrust case against Facebook and lost. And now they have to retry the case and they got to rewrite the rules of what a monopoly is because those are very old laws to apply to social networks in 2021 because they were written around a kind of antiquated, uh, you know, uh, industrial complex type companies. The next article from the Wall Street Journal says that New York City Council passes five bills aimed at reducing the power of food delivery platforms like gorillas we were just talking about, including extending a cap on restaurant commissions, etc. And they realize that these food delivery companies, of which there's not many, you know, a handful, you know, you got three, four, five in some city. New York City is the world's biggest city for food delivery, mathematically double the second, which was uh, Washington, D.C., and then the Bay Area and whatever. There's a chart for with, which in the U.S. Anyways, so within the We're U.S. busy people. Huh? New Yorkers are busy people. Yeah, indeed they are. And so food delivery is a very real thing there. And the New York City Council passing bills aimed at reducing the power of food delivery platforms is a huge deal because the food delivery platforms today are only food delivery platforms. They're getting the food from somewhere else. They're not kitchens themselves. They're getting the food from restaurants, right? And they might be getting it from new cloud kitchens. By the way, Travis, the co-founder and CEO of Uber, when he resigned from Uber, created cloudkitchens.com because, and he said this will be bigger than Uber. And he's right. Because Uber's only delivering the food. The cloud kitchen's making the food that's being delivered. So he knew because they started Uber Eats when he was still there, and he realized Uber Eats is going to be more more of Uber's deliveries are going to be food rather than people. And he's right. And Uber, so when he did cloud kitchens, genius, genius, genius move. And So these cloud kitchen companies are exploding everywhere. He's building warehouses everywhere, filling them with, you know, dozens of different mini kitchens inside of them of every different Italian, Indian, Mexican, Persian, you know, Chinese, Japanese, you name it. They're all in one warehouse with no branding, no nothing. It's just an incredibly efficient, you know, German-like efficient warehouse of um, robots making all kinds of an incredibly huge menu. You in your app see it as it looks like different restaurants. They're not. It's all one big warehouse on the outside of town. And so the New York City uh, is realizing that these food delivery platforms like 
uh, Food Panda and Deliveroo and what have you are, and Uber Eats is becoming, they are getting the money and they are getting the order. They own the relationship with the customer and they get the money. That's the power. They have all the power. They decide where you get the food from. Eventually, they will replace the mom and pop restaurants and eventually, due to market conditions, the dynamics of capitalism, they will make their own cloud kitchens to make all the food for everyone ordering through their apps. They'll pretend that they are restaurants just to make it more palatable to the people ordering. They'll pretend that it's a Mexican restaurant and a, and a Polish restaurant and whatever else. But, but Tyler, yes. part, of, part of this business model is that um, in some cities like where they don't have, let's like, say, a huge warehouse, they are partnering with local for businesses. The, so if, for the time being. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. But there's there are issues there, right? Because, you know, <laughs> um, if you look up your destinate sorry the location of where your food is coming from and you ordered mexican but it came from a chinese restaurant that that reduces trust of on course. the consumer side too right yeah I, I can i say one thing tyler yeah. but i hope the americans don't get offended um i think it also depends on your taste buds right uh, a lot of people in asia can, can tell the difference between good food and uh, not so good food and they, they want they want to order food from the places that they they like the food from so yeah i get what you mean well, what I mean, eventually what they'll do is the the restaurants will start hurting. <clears throat> they'll go to the chefs and be like, hey, you're the chef from the Mexican, the highest rated Mexican restaurant. How about we double your salary to work in this cloud kitchen over here? And they they need eventually they're going to they they want to control their own supply because just like. Apple is making their own chips and just like Google wants to make their own chips because they don't want to be dependent on another company for something so integral to their business and you get better margins. So if you can control the supply chain, that's the name of the game. So these these delivery companies will eventually build their own cloud kitchens slash cloud grocery stores, which are grocery stores optimized for robots, not human pickup people which are they can cut the the time from minutes down to seconds in building your basket of your order and save you an additional 3 minutes on your delivery time and the, lower the cost by 30% and lower the dependency on the supermarket not being open that day or not allow or telling them they're not welcome there anymore or anything like that they're gonna, they're just going to when they get to a certain size and scale they have to remove out any dependencies they have in the supply chain that's just an inevitable part of the evolution of that business model. So it's going to happen. And that's what I think people are starting to realize this, that Instacart is, we read the headline, they're now going to build a robotic grocery store. But they're saying they're partnering with a, a traditional grocery store. Well, in, in the, in the in not so long, they're gonna not, not need, they won't need to partner with a grocery store. They're just going to have their own robotic grocery store. And it's going to be grocery stores, 7-Eleven convenience stores, and restaurants all in one big factory, a cloud city. It's a cloud, robotically driven, autonomous uh, cooks. And I don't know, if, by the way, if you've seen these uh, robotic cloud kitchens, it's fantastic how they've designed these. They're truly genius. I mean, they're, they're kind of on the third generation of them. It's not even a robotic arm doing spaghetti like you think it would be. It's the, this, the pot shakes and everything, and almost like a paint shaker. You know, if you've ever been to Home Depot and they shake your paint when you mix paints and it's like it's wild and it just plops the whole pot down onto a, 
into a container and it slaps, you know, the lid is already kind of on a hinge and then they put it, puts it in a bag and, you know, someone's got to put it in the autonomous delivery vehicle. It gets it to your house. It's the whole thing will be autonomized, you know, in the next five years, soup to nuts. There'll be very little humans involved. Tyler, uh, Grab's already doing the Grab Kitchen stuff. So I'm not sure if people know about that. Well, geez, thank you for letting, thank you for proving my entire point. It, I mean, I'm just supporting, you know, what, what you've been saying. I'm just Grab Kitchens launched in 2018 or 2019. Hello. It's yeah. Same, same, same thing uh, that you mentioned. Yep. Hello. Grab's the big player in Southeast Asia. Grab's doing their own kitchens. They started out not with their own kitchens. Hello. Is anyone paying attention? Is this mic on? Hello. Microphone check. Are we getting it yet? This is really hot. Will I have to get my own bananas? Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, Cheryl. It's been it's been around. Yeah, yeah. They, they, no, because you know why? In Singapore, in Malaysia, we have hawker and street food culture. I'm sure if you pay them good money, they will work in the in the in the in the so called the cloud kitchen. Not not a problem. Okay. Next. So meaning to say that the standard of the food still has to be there. You can't use a robot to manufacture the food, Tyler. Okay. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah, researchers okay. say collection of nine Roman blah, blah blah. That's that one. Spacs are being forced to fund deals. Blah. A new dele- deleted tweet by an Intel executive says that Thunderbolt Five uh, could double the bandwidth of Thunderbolt Four, and then he deleted his tweet because he uh, broke the embargo and he didn't realize it. Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the founders of Google, have sold a combined one billion dollars in Google stock since May twenty one May of twenty twenty one of this year which is the most they've sold since 2017. Google shares price have tripled since 2017. And Estonian ride-hailing startup uh, Bolt, formerly known as Taxify, raises uh, $713 million at a $4.75 billion valuation led by Sequoia. Square did their quarterly earnings report up 143% year over year and had a nice uptick as a result. And Zoom agrees to pay $85 million to bolster security and settle a class action lawsuit. Okay, so... Now we get into the the more interesting headlines uh, from Forbes. Panic is suddenly spreading among Bitcoin, Ethereum, and the Doge communities as crypto traders are feeling nervous due to the $550 billion bipartisan infrastructure bill that currently is making its way through the U.S. legislature. And if you were with us from the beginning, you know why. And they very much should be shitting themselves over this uh, infrastructure bill because there's provisions inside of this bill that fundamentally changed the entire game of crypto in America. Bitcoin and cryptocurrency prices have soared this weekend with the Bitcoin price making significant gains over $40,000. The Bitcoin price climbed to almost $43,000 per Bitcoin last night, its highest since mid-May and almost 10,000 higher than its price this week, this time last week. Meanwhile, the Ethereum price has also led the cryptocurrency market higher over the last 24 hours. However, many crypto traders are feeling increasingly nervous due to the $550 billion bipartisan bill that's currently making its way through the legislature and includes a provision to raise $28 billion from crypto investors with some warning it could kill the industry. And indeed, it very likely could. If you, and you know exactly what I'm talking about if you were here for the long rant an hour ago because the bill essentially is going to require any crypto startup to record all of the personal details and addresses registered addresses of every user of their crypto startup can can i interject here because like if your startup is decentralized in nature say if you're running a decentralized autonomous organization yep a dow yeah literally you literally 
have no can office. Say fuck you. That you could. To the IRS. I, I specifically <laughs> said this case. This is what's going to happen. Is it's going to accelerate? They're kind of moot. Yeah. Well, no. What it's going like to the do? IRS. It's not moot at all. What it does is, well, in the case of a DAO, it is, yes. So it's going to yeah. create uh, and exacerbate the creations uh, of DAOs versus you're going to have two choices. There's no middle ground anymore. You're either going to have to fully, fully, fully comply, which is now uh, the antithesis of Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper and, and the whole intent of Bitcoin of being truly decentralized. And now you've got to get everybody's addresses and verified identities of every user on your cryptocurrency platform. Some will do that. Coinbase has no choice. They're going to have to do that because they're a publicly traded company now. Yeah, and I deleted my Coinbase, and it takes five years for that. Like, and like, it takes you five years for your information to be wiped. And they did; they do have inner workings with the IRS. I read into that. Yeah, but now they're going to have more data on every user than they even currently do, due to this um, bill that's going to get passed. Now, the opposite is going to happen: is you're going to have a whole bunch of crypto folks who are going to wish they had started out totally anonymously in a, in a DAO-type framework, because if you registered yourself as a Delaware LLC or created any kind of legal American company structure, even as an individual doing a LLC or a you know partnership of some kind or a C-Corp or an S-Corp or whatever, you're done. you got to start over because you don't really have a choice. You need to start over as a DAO, a DAO, de decentralized uh, organization, and be ought, be fully pseudonymous like Satoshi was, and build your structure in a way that the government can't touch and can't shut down. And that's going to if if you complete that state, say what VC or equity. If you're a startup that's got funding, right, you're, you're done. Screwed. You're screwed. You 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 now either have to fully comply. With the IRS, which is now going to require identity verifications at, with addresses of every user on your platform, or start over and go fully Satoshi mode. Or, I mean, or you could just sell NFTs that represent a utility within your platform and then just go that route and stop. Bot like, you don't need to register anything so the assholes can track you like <laughs> you, you're like everyone's fine you can you know like keep playing in the sandbox <laughs> can i comment on this uh, I, I perhaps not this is... the, the wording in the provision in the new bill refers to people as brokers and you could be a broker of a utility but if it has value that's where they will try to get you from the irs perspective but you're right you're gonna have to make the yeah, argument that, the that keyword this is try right the keyword is try well, no, but it's a, it's they're the jury, they're the judge in the decision as to whether or not you're guilty. So it's you who is going to have to if try to convince them. Power. They have the power if, of the fucking army to come to your fucking house and shut you down. It's do their it. choice. Do it. You you have no choice yeah. in the matter. It's up to the. It's at their discretion. They're the judge, executioner, and the jury in this yeah, trial. I'd like to see them Tyler? Try. I know, I know. Tyler, Tyler I think Linus wants to. Speak so, so your 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 question of them trying is is meaningless. They they don't need to try. They just do. Yeah, yeah. I know, and that's Tyler? if they can find me. Tyler, I think <laughs> I love Russ and Tyler. Maybe, maybe, Russ, maybe I, Russ. I recommend you have lunch uh, with a couple of my friends, Edward Snowden, and. Um, <laughs> Yeah, go join him in Russia. Yeah, they got my friend too. Yeah. 
Uh, Tyler, but then this goes back. To, sorry, the dog's barking. This goes back to what you were saying in terms of this goes back to what you were saying about find it's those locations that will make it attractive for these individuals to bring their business there, right? If we start to navigate sort of this new organizational infrastructure like a DAO, right? Wyoming's the one state that Give has 30 seconds on this is boring ass shit. We got to move on. Okay, got it. Basically, they're going to find you anyway because as long as you have the United States passport, they'll they have that's why people are giving up their passport. This is this is my point. Is it's going to exacerbate a bunch of people that are giving out their passport. You're going to have a crypto well. exodus. Some percentage of the American-based crypto community are going to have to move. Simple as that. I, I think you're taking this a bit too dram- uh, dramatic, Tyler, because okay. uh, look at the ICO, for example, bubble that was a few years ago. Yes. Uh, all of them simply has uh, excluded anyone from America. Correct. Because it could be considered as security. And Linus, they still and that, do. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course Linus, you're Swedish, right? No one. Yeah, I, yeah. So that's this. That's this is the Swedish perspective, which is like, oh, who cares? We just don't have anything to do with America. And you could do that. You could say we refuse any Americans on the platform, as the ICOs did, to comply with America's rules. You can do that. That is yeah, one approach. I see it as three ways. Uh, what, what I'm referring to, forgive, yeah, but Linus, forgive me. I'm referring to American crypto community. And the founders. Who yeah, do, and, uh, and, and there are either business that already do this, KYC, full KYC. Mm-hmm. Most companies that is involved in any custodial of uh, customers' money, they already do this. So I don't see the difference there. There are also those who actually don't provide a service related to transactions. Right. But they are a startup within blockchain. True. And they are not affected by this because Fair they point. don't do transactions as a service. Correct. And you have, like you mentioned, the ones that already go for the anonymous or de- fully decentralized right. uh, sized, uh, way. And so I don't see this as a showstopper at all. Yeah. Let me ask it's you this, a, It's Lena. just a hinder. True. Uh, it's, it's relevant to a for to a non-trivial percentage of crypto American startups, though. So, Linus, if you were a American living in America doing a decentralized DAO system, would you feel comfortable staying in America with this? I, I would not do that in America, and I'm actually that's not my. Please, it's a yes Sweden or no question. Same, though, I, I'm, I'm moving from Sweden for the same reason. <laughs> I've been fighting the government for six years already, so I'm moving to Malta in just a few months. So. Yeah, as many Swedes do, as many of my friends have, um, who are doing you know the game, what we call gaming startups, which are kind of gambling, online gambling, and whatnot. Yeah, Malta made itself similar. Moldova has a fantastic opportunity. Malta might as well, or Gibraltar. You know, traditionally there are geographies that see an opportunity, and um, as Malta has. And there's been some fantastic Swedish unicorns that were built out of Malta, you know. So there you go. Great point, Linus. Um, So the next uh, biggest headline at the moment, or the most interesting one, let's put it that way. So uh, let me retweet out this one from Forbes about panic is setting in amongst uh, crypto traders. And the next one is Tencent. And here, uh, Ken, this is yours, Tencent article, Wall Street Journal. You were waiting for this one. Tencent plummets as China takes aim at online video games. And Tencent is the biggest player in video games globally. And acquired another huge, um, they just spent like some billions on a UK 
game company. Yeah, that's every week. They're buying up gaming studios around the world and they're becoming the the mega, they're like the LVMH of games. What LVMH is to luxury fashion. They spent like 1.3 billion on this deal like a month ago. No problem. Pocket change. They're buying up major gaming studios all around the world. They want to consolidate the gaming market. By the way, there's a, a player out of Stockholm doing the, another, an individual, a big private equity figure in Stockholm doing the same. Linus, you might even recall the name of the guy um, who's ro- buying up, rolling up all of the, it's called a roll up in business, you know, economics class, where you find an industry that's doing really well. You start acquiring all of the players and somebody could come and acquire all of the food delivery companies and make it one mega global food delivery company. Somebody will might eventually do that if the politicians would let them. Same concept. Someone's going and buying up all the gaming studios. You just get market efficiencies because you can. You don't need a separate marketing team for every single game. You only need one big mega marketing team of the best 10% of the marketers across all of those different titles. And you just get efficiencies by consolidating internally what's called a roll-up so tencent is kind of rolling up video game studios so is this guy out of stockholm and you're seeing what's just called consolidation in the market and you're seeing mass consolidation in the video game space um great for video game founders they get it's much more easy to get acquired and anyway so the article said shares of tencent and rivals plummeting tuesday after a state-owned chinese newspaper criticized online gaming as opium for the mind fueling investor concerns that um, co- companies popular uh, that the company's popular games could be swept into a broader regulatory crackdown. So to unpack this, China's cracking down on different industries, namely EdTech just got cracked down on. Now the housing market is getting cracked down on as we speak. And some Chinese newspaper made a little comment in their newspaper, saying that online gaming is opium for the mind, and that has led to a sell-off of Chinese video games because they're worried because in China, the newspapers are controlled by the state. And so when the newspaper says video games are opium for the mind, it's a way for the government to send a little hint, smokescreen message test to see how people respond to the idea that we might crack down on video games, which, by the way, they already are. You have to... Is you can't play video games under the age of 18 past 10 p.m. How do they control that? Through facial recognition algorithms where you're looking at your screen, the camera looks at your face. If you're under 18, it's past 10, to 10 a.m., your game stops. That Because it's the opium of the mind. They don't want you playing video games. It's not good for you as an individual. You're eating too much junk food. You're mentally diabetic. You're emotionally obese. Stop doing things that are bad for you. We're going to control that for you. You don't have self-control. We do. You're done. The state's deciding, you know, what's best for you. So if the Chinese newspaper says online gaming is opium for the mind, oh, shit, that is a sign they potentially might crack down on the video game industry, which will, the valuations will get cut in half. So investors panic and are selling off. That's what's happening. And hey, they, might, they might be right. And by the way, they might, by the way, let's go in and bring in you know david chang and our other friends in beijing and find out is there any talk within the government that they think one of the reasons leading to the declining birth rate is video games because we've discussed this in america that this is 
This is not uh, when on the topic of the global declining birth rates of all of the developing countries, which they all are. One of the theories is that it's in some way related to video games. And the, the CCP might be thinking the same. I can't blame them if they are. I've thought the same about the declining birth rates across Europe and America. So they might actually want to crack down on video games as they perceive them to be opiates of the mind. And more importantly, uh, castration of the male population, digital castration or some uh, uh, what, what's the a prophylactic of, you know, maybe it's relating to the declining birth rate. And if they decide that video games are declining the birth rate, yeah, they will crack down on it because that's their overarching meta narrative uh, objective at the moment. You were saying, Vinay? Yeah, so a couple of hours right after that article came out, I've tweeted to you, China's Tencent Holdings said on Tuesday it would curb miners' access to its flagship video game yep. hours after its shares were battered by a state media article yep. that described online. So Tencent's already scrambling, yep. putting in stuff, right? So yep. they've lost enough money with all of the other You know what's coming next? Doing. You know what's here, here's what's coming next. Official Chinese state dating app coming your way. That, that's an easy prediction. They, by the way, Iran just did the same. That was a headline last week in Iran. That state, state, state-sponsored state dating matching. <laughs> with genetic matching, right? They, they, very, very well might. But uh, that's they're going to continue to do endlessly until the birth rate improves. They're going to crack down on everything they see as an impedance to the birth rate. Yeah, and, and the article says the government has vowed to strengthen rules around online gaming and education to protect child well-being. So they're very, very clear on that. Uh, one second here. I just want to find something in this article. Is that, I mean, that's terrifying, right? Is anyone else terrified by that, or is it just me? It's um, Americans would be terrified by it. People living in the rest of the world okay, wouldn't good. be. Yeah, yeah okay, Russ, cool. you not alone. Russ, Hello, Russ. add something when you're done. Go ahead, Rada. If you have a chance to travel the world, you oh. will know that there are many nice and beautiful places outside of America. So give that a chance first before you decide what you want to do. Go ahead. Rada. I think um, I think I was going to add. I think on the birth rate side, is people forget that um, America, Europe, China included, and um, you, Europe, America, China. I'm sorry, Slate, and most of the industrialized world has an aging population that's approaching 65, I think, with 15,000 people daily. So only in the Middle East, and China's worried about this, they've been worried about this for years, are they worried about the next 30 years? Like, where will their population be? And I think you're right. If you see these official dating apps in Iran or these other countries, they're trying to change the dynamic because most of our population is, you know, greater than 50, the ones that control the most wealth and that have the influence and power globally are greater than 50, if not 60. Mm. And you're going to see a different swing on that. That's what I would add. So okay. I think you'll see more of this coming. So check this out. In this article, uh, it highlights more of kind of what I was suggesting, which it says, um, one motivation for Beijing to address social concerns, such as relieving the extreme pressures placed on children by the country's highly competitive education systems. Chinese authorities have previously raised concerns about the gaming habits of young people. Uh, in 2018, for a period, they stopped issuing video game licenses. Since then, Tencent, the biggest gaming company in China, has worked closely with the authorities that approve games in China. So to make a game in China, it must be approved by the authorities. 
a role now filled by the National Press and Publication Administration. Earlier this month, Tencent launched a facial recognition system to limit late night gaming by children. As I just said, Tencent is an industry powerhouse and Honor of Kings was the world's top grossing game in both 2019 2020 and Tencent's gaming revenue. Blah. Last week, a senior commun last week, a senior Communist Party official told an industry expo in Shanghai that preventing young people from becoming addicted to video games was a top priority for the CCP. We will keep a close eye on it, said Yang Feng, the deputy director of Publication Bureau of the party's central propaganda department. They're keeping a very close eye on video game addiction. Why would they care? Productivity, yeah, and birth rate. But there's also this one piece of, of the end goal that they can't legislate away. Mm -hmm. um, the gender imbalances that came out of the long-term one-child policy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I that... mean, you need you need more, <laughs> more yeah. women to be making those babies. So um, it's going to be interesting to see how they're going to tackle that. Yeah. Next, good point. The next one is from Forbes. Self-driving tech developer Aurora raises $2 billion for self-driving cars. Not a surprise if you follow tech news around the world every day. And you, you know why the investors are throwing billions of dollars into autonomous vehicles. You know why? Because you want all of that shit at your house. E-commerce is going to take over. Scientists reverse age-related memory loss in mice. Not just any scientist. That's David Sinclair, my buddy who spoke at my event two years ago from Harvard University, who's now considered the world's leading expert on not only aging, but reversing aging in his lab, as he claims he's done with mice at Harvard. And, um, yeah, they think they're starting to figure it out. Good times. Now this article is about reversing age-related memory loss in mice. Fantastic. Let's hope they have. And the the they mentioned how the mouse brain similar in this regard to the human brain. And the next step is to do kind of human trials on uh, on this. X SpaceX engineers in race to build. Now they've changed their headline. Funny. Uh, in race to build first commercial uh, electric speedboat. And I pinged my friend Conrad Bergstrom which uh, Linus on stage might know Conrad. Pretty much every Swede is familiar with Conrad. Uh, he built all of those Marshall Bluetooth speakers that people have in their offices and houses if they want to feel like a rock star. And they've got these you know, Marshall Bluetooth speakers and headphones, which are incredibly popular around Europe. And that's uh, my buddy Conrad, who then, when he left that company, uh, started a new electric boat, like a Tesla for boats, called Xshore which he launched at my event about two and a half years ago on stage live. And now there's a new headline of a new uh, Tesla for boats called Arc Boat. I just was chatting with Conrad in Facebook Messenger, and he says he will likely join us tomorrow or his CEO, which I'm trying to remember the name of. Uh, anyway, but this is an ex-SpaceX uh, SpaceX engineers are joining the Tesla for Boats race. They just raised $4.2 million in seed funding for a 70, 475 horsepower craft. And six videos by Sky News Australia host Alan Jones, Ronan Dean, and Rita Panahi have been removed for YouTube for uh, COVID misinformation. And that's a Rupert Murdoch outlet being censored by YouTube. So now Rupert hates Facebook, and now Rupert hates YouTube. 
So watch what happens um, as he will retaliate in very clever ways, in which we will see those headlines when he does. Like, MySpace is coming back. <laughs> which, which Rupert bought, by the way. Yeah, it's funny. Um, Telstra, the incumbent telecom operator in Australia, have made national calls free from 15,000 payphones that still exist miraculously in Australia. <laughs> I don't know which is the bigger headline, that there's actually still payphones in Australia or that they're making them free. What's a payphone, Tyler? Yeah, it's a long story. Um, how to explain this. You, people used to put coins into phones uh, bolted to the ground in, in, in public areas. Is that phone a comical box. question or an actual question? I wrote that you should what, have seen it before. What's a no? coin? <laughs> mahogany. How do you put Bitcoin in a phone? How young are you, Mahogany? Yeah, Lilium in talks with Brazilian airline for a $1 billion order. I love this one. Oh, my God, what a sexy photo this is. I just tweeted out from Poppy. You got to see this. It shows the new Lilium seven-seater jet flying into uh, Rio de Janeiro, um, um, Ipanema Beach, it appears. Fantastic photo. Holy shit. Oh, my God, I want that thing. That That is number one on my Christmas list. The Lilium, a fully electric vertical takeoff and landing jet. Not, no propellers, jets. Fantastic. Oh my God. Uh, Nova Kid investors bet $35 million that it can teach kids English. We covered that. And now I'm tweeting it again. Thank you for that one. And U.S. Senate bill seeks to require anti-drunk driving vehicle tech. Alcohol detection systems in vehicles that prevent impaired driving could save upward of 9,000 lives annually in the U.S. How are they going to do it? They have to put a little hose that you blow into to start your car, I imagine. How else would they do anti-drunk driving vehicle tech? Ah, you could do a math puzzle or some shit like that. Tyler. Or they can check with the retina, like there can be an eye scanner in the car. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, you can do alcohol through retina. That's right. There you go, Mahogany. Go ahead, LS. Well, that's weird. I don't want to speak too much about OC, but... I was talking to a girl about a few months ago because of COVID that said she used to do toxicity, um, you know, blood tests. Yeah. The, yeah. The alcohol. But she said that she said that she got basically laid off. There yep. wasn't enough work. Yep. So if they're going to tech, I think they can't set up enough roadblocks to know what people are doing, especially because um, marijuana, I don't do it, but marijuana is legal in, in California. So, they're looking for anything DUI. It's not just alcohol. It might be any substance. And so that's intriguing to me with opiates, marijuana, and everything else in the U.S., that they can do it through the car versus individuals because they're not, they used to make a lot of money off of yeah. that. And she said, yeah. So the next interesting tweet just came from Dan and the, I think he had to get himself to sleep. The, the but this gives us a fantastic opportunity to play our favorite new show tech news jeopardy which country has the highest market share uh, of new vehicles sold as evs is it japan korea china sweden california netherlands or norway norway by well, you said country or state because california is a state 
Oh, you're right. California is one of them. We're, we're like a country. Come on. Are, are, are you saying per capita or total number? Yeah, market share of vehicle sales percentage. The answer by an overwhelming landslide, no one's even close, is Norway. Netherlands is second, just above Sweden. Norway is about 50, only approaching 60% of all car sales in Norway are EVs. Oh, we got it right. All right. There are a lot of incentives. Yes, uh, incredible incentives there. And Netherlands is under 20%. Sweden's around 15. China's around 8. And Korea and Japan and everything else around 5. So you can see the chart. I just tweeted it from the Tech News Twitter account. And you can see just how overwhelmingly Norway is, due, largely due to incentives, as Mahogany said. They have amazing Tyler. incentives. Yes. Netherlands really likes their e-vehicles quite a lot because they have a huge sharing economy and the sharing cars are electric. Yeah, they're ta- cool. well, their taxis so, are all EVs as well. Oh, they love it. Yeah. I, well, we have the taxis or Teslas here. Everyone loves it when they arrive in Amsterdam because probably half the taxis, if not more, are Teslas. Mm. And a lot 100% of really are do. Teslas in Norway. <laughs> I know. I, I, was, uh, I, I know that the, when I came in one time coming back from the U.S., I, I noticed that all of the taxis were Teslas. And I think now they're sort of becoming more e-vehicles, like not just Teslas, but e-vehicle. And the car shares are also e. And the bikes now, the, the scooter shares are also electric now. Yeah. So there's a, they're really kind of uh, revamping everything to become more sustainable in that context. Okay, here we go. Real, real speed style now. Um, we, can't, we have to save that one for next time and save that one for next time. Lindsey Graham has COVID-19. You know, the Republican senator who three days previously joined a protest about not having to wear masks and whatnot. Yeah, that guy. Just got uh, COVID himself. There you go, Lindsay. Well done. You did it. And in news that everyone predicted jihadist, yes, jihadist flood pro-Chump social network. We covered that. Amazon will pay you $10 for your palm print biometrics. Amazon can use the data it collects like shopping history to target ads, offers and recommendations to you over time. This article from TechCrunch, Amazon will pay you $10 for your palm print biometrics. The retail giant has a spotty history with biometric data, but they're doing self-checkout now at their supermarkets with palm reading. And that's why they want to register your palm. So that when you go into an Amazon supermarket, which has no staff, you put everything in your basket, you walk out by simply putting your palm on the scanner and you walk out. And that's why they need your palm. There you go. Amazon... Also, uh, in this headline, Amazon's AI cameras reportedly determine drivers' pay and employment status. A recent report found that Amazon's cameras track and score drivers based on how they conform to safety rating system. For example, um, they reportedly determine drivers' pay and employment status by scoring safety infractions like tailgating and running red lights. Amazon's AI camera systems track when delivery drivers run stop signs or perform illegal U-turns. Documents found that the cameras can determine a driver's pay or employment status. Amazon has faced backlash in the past for its use of AI systems to track employees. The publication obtained confidential documents that revealed Amazon has developed a point system for drivers using cameras in its delivery trucks that can identify anything from sneeze to whether a driver has their eyes on the road or is following another car too closely. How dare they? The the four cameras, including one camera that points directly at the driver from underneath 
the rear view mirror are made by Netradyne and focus on both the inside and outside of the delivery van. Amazon has said in the past that the cameras are not continuously live, but only come into play when the built-in AI detects potentially unsafe circumstances like unexpected braking or distracting driving. Distracted driving. Amazon spokesperson Toll said that the camera system has improved safety for drivers. This technology provides drivers real-time alerts to help them stay safe when they are on the road. Yep. Again, you just got to be upfront with this stuff and tell your drivers, hey, do you want to have cameras all over you all the time? You don't. Good. Get out of here. End of interview. Stop. And just what is I mean, it's either that or journalists just need are bored and need shit to write about. Um, is there any quote from a driver claiming kind of anything? No, there's not. It's just. Uh, OK, there we go. That one's let's tweet that one out. There it goes. It's gone. All right. Next article. The um, breaking news. Beware. Brave boys and girls, if you think Delta is to be dangerous, Lambda may may be a potential threat to human society as Delta infections among vaccinated likely contagious. Lambda variant shows um, what? What is it about Lambda? This is from Reuters. Resistance. Resistance. Ah, to ah shows vaccine resistance in labs. Yeah. Oh, lovely. And it's very scary. <laughs> Yeah, the following round. Oh, here we go. Among people infected by Delta variant of the coronavirus, fully vaccinated people with breakthrough infections may be just as likely as unvaccinated people to spread the virus to others. The higher the amount of coronavirus in the nose and throat, the more likely the patient will uh, infect others. After Delta became dominant in Wisconsin, researchers analyzed viral loads on the nose and throat and swabs obtained with patients were first diagnosed. They found similar viral loads in vaccinated and unvaccinated patients with levels often high enough to allow shedding uh, virus. Let's get to the the headlines about Lambda, though. Where's Lambda? Give me, give me the news on Lambda. Tyler, if you check out my pinned tweet, it does have the details oh, I got on it. Lambda. I, here we go. The Lambda right variant of the virus, first identified in Peru, is now spreading in South America. It's highly infectious and more resistant to vaccines than the original version of the virus Uh, In lab tests, they found that three mutations of lambda spike protein help it resist neutralization by vaccine-induced antibodies. Two additional mutations help make lambda highly infectious, they found. In a paper ahead of peer review, the research warns that lambda being labeled a variant of interest by the World Health Organization rather than variant of concern. People might not realize it is a serious ongoing threat, although it is not clear yet whether this variant is more dangerous than Delta, now now threatening populations in many countries. Lambda can be a potential threat to human society. If it if it's as 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 contagious as Delta, but uh, defeating of vaccines, because then then we're really screwed. Because then we need to come up with a new vaccine that works against Lambda if we can. And we might not like the common cold or like traditional flus. You can make a vaccine that's like helps diminish a bit like the common cold, but it's getting to a point where you get too many variations like the flu where your annual flu shot, it doesn't mean you won't get it. It just means, you know, it'll be less intense. And maybe that starts being the new normal is vaccines that uh, can just minimize 
the effects. Okay, so there we go. Lambda could be some serious stuff. Next one is app, Apple App Store, iTunes now accept payments via UPI, RuPay, as additional payment options on App Store and iTunes. iOS users can also add funds to their Apple ID. This is good news for people in India who use RuPay, basically. So there you go for Indians. Wildfires blaze on in drought hit Turkey as criticism grows. Firefighters using planes and helicopters and locals with buckets of water battled wildfires raging for a sixth day near southern coastal resorts in Turkey. And what's the criticism? Seven fires were still burning. Ah, the, the government faced fresh criticism of its handling of the disaster. We are here as the entire village from the locals to the others. We didn't run or anything, so the government must see this and also not run away. It must send some planes here, a woman called. Yeah, that's not how fires work, telling you as someone from California. You get the fuck out of there. You don't wait on the government to do nothing. Uh, as somebody who lives in the fire zone of Southern California, where we have annual fire season, get the fuck out of there and stop asking the government to come send a plane. Don't, don't, don't risk your damn life for your house. As everybody in Malibu knows very, very well. Doesn't matter if you're a billionaire. Your house burns to the ground just like anybody else's. Amazon Union election should be rerun, labor official says. Yeah, well, I think Amazon says the opposite. Uh, A federal official has recognized overturning the results of a union election at Amazon Warehouse in Alabama that we started covering live in real time every day about two and a half months ago which the Amazon won against the union to uh, 66 to 33, as I recall. And now a federal official has recommended overturning the results. And uh, Amazon isn't going to let that go down easily because Amazon unionizing is an existential threat to the entire trillion dollar company. They're not going to throw a trillion dollar company into the ocean uh, easily. They're not going to let that one go down easily. They're one of the biggest companies on the planet worth over a trillion dollars. That is a unionization of Amazon is an absolute gun, a loaded gun to the head of Amazon. And they're not going to let you do that. They're not going to let you unionize. If you unionize a location, they will shut it down instantly. You're going to have to unionize the, all warehouses simultaneously. If you sh- try and unionize one, they will very happily shut that down. They'll happily cut off their pinky finger to save the entire body. Your move, unions. West Africa Block plans to start cross-border debt market in 2023. So basically, yeah, West African Block of 15 West African nations to link up their debt markets is on track to become a reality by the end of 2023. Part of a wider push um, uh, to unify uh, Western Africa. Very real fourth wave uh, is the quote, presses the FDA to fully approve COVID shots. Agency also looking at international data as it weighs booster doses, says the vaccine chief. Yep. You do need the boosters. It's pretty freaking simple. Um, How to build a water smart city is the headline from Bloomberg. As water shortages and drought becomes increasingly common, cities will need to invest in infrastructure and find ways to recycle their supply. Fair enough. 
Deutsche Bank pivots to virtual tech conference as Delta spreads, as I am as well. <laughs> it looks like my annual September event ain't going to happen. And doesn't look like I can reschedule it for any time in the fall. Um, so we'll have to do it here in the clubhouse. Oh, darn. And then China Spectre jolts ByteDance backers to try trimming stakes as uh, from Bloomberg. A handful of investors rattled by China's sweeping regulatory changes are looking to offload private stakes in TikTok. Yep, everyone wants to sell all their Chinese tech companies. Worried that they might be the next crackdown where they'll have that all of their investment disappear overnight. That's what happens when you kill an industry. U.S. Air Force developed a bird-like micro-drones with flapping wings the size of a common housefly or a mosquito. And, and, and make note of who created that. It's the U.S. Air Force. So do you think they'll be militarized? Nah. It's just the military making mosquito-sized drones. Will the, will the military militarize these? No, of course not. They're commercial, right? It's for your kids on Christmas. That's why the, the U.S. Air Force is making these. Dubai will bring Michelin star chefs over 200 exclusive dining options to Expo 2020. Uh, the, the lineup will include everything from globally famous Michelin star chefs to local stalwarts as they get ready to prepare for Expo 2020. And uh, it's quite quite a massive thing they got going on there in Dubai. I'm, I'm tempted to get over there myself. Precog AI will forecast what's going to happen in the next few days. The Pentagon believes it's Precognitive AI can predict events in the future. And the big question, does this warrant a preemptive strike or pre-crime arrests from Jeremiah? We will dive deep into that when we meet again in about five hours, just less than five hours. So we will pause. Well, like minority Report. Yeah, minor, exactly. Minority Report. There we go. So a big thank you to everybody for yet another news-filled, rant-filled tech news around the world. We will meet again in just under five hours. I hope you join us then. And thank you, Tyler. Have a fantastic Tyler. Tuesday, everybody. You too. Thanks, Tyler. All right, thank you, guys.